everybody. Thanks for checking out the podcast. We greatly appreciate your support. But before we get started, I wanted to tell you about a success story. I wanted to tell you about my friend, Carl up in new Boston, Michigan. He listens to our pods every week and he heard me talking about how I might be able to help him out. So he hit me up over at SaveWithConrad.com. He just closed last month and he left us a five-star review and he had this to say, not only did we save over a hundred thousand dollars on our mortgage by removing several years off of it. He also saved us a few months of payments and follow up. Conrad and Steve are super helpful. When I had additional questions, you can't go wrong here with save with Conrad. Definitely worth the call to understand what your savings could be. Take Carl's word for it. He saved more than a hundred grand. What have you got to lose? Be like Carl, go to savewithconrad.com right now and find out how much money you can save for free. You don't need perfect credit. You don't need money out of your pocket. And if we can't help you save some cash, we won't waste your time. But because we're licensed in more than 40 states, we can help more families than ever before. Why not you? Why not now? Go to savewithconrad.com and find out how much money you can save for free. NMLS number 65084, Equal Housing Lender. Oh, and did I mention no house payments for two months? Get a quick quote right now. Thank me later and you'll be glad you did. Savewithconrad.com. There's no better time to say I love you and the most hated jeweler in America is at it again. You've heard us say I hate stevensinger.com and you've heard us rave about his famous roses. But Steven Singer has been selling diamonds and bridal jewelry for four decades. Whether you have someone or something to celebrate, Steven is there for you. Ready to take the next step? Steven has a ready for love engagement ring collection that's no hassle, no risk, expertly picked engagement rings that are ready to go. Don't worry, Steven won't let you mess this up. He's been selling online for over two decades, but recently, He's kicked everything up a notch to better serve his friends and guests online. He has real expert jewelers on call to help you find the perfect ring or gift through new virtual video appointments, calls, texts, chats, or emails, all with extended hours. On top of that, he offers the best guarantee in the business with a full 100 day, 100% money back guarantee and free shipping. Interest free financing is available online too. And that's just the beginning gifts that say, I love you every single day backed with decades of experience in the comfort of your own home. It's easy. Just go to I hate fast, free and safe shipping. Steven singer jewelers. That's I hate Steven singer.com. and you're listening to 83 weeks with the man with the plan here he is ladies and gentlemen the innovator of nitro the man who convinced hulk hogan to become a bad guy and kicked vince mcmahon's ass not once not twice but 83 weeks in a row ladies and gentlemen the founder of the nwo mr eric bischoff eric how are you man man that was a hell of a build-up conrad i we set the bar pretty high there. I hope we don't disappoint anybody today. What did I say that wasn't true? Well, it's just, I don't know. It's all true, but damn. I, I'm, ex- build up. 
Well, it is a big buildup, but it's going to be a great week. We love talking about ECW here on this show, and this is yet another ECW reunion show. We've talked a lot about One Night Stand 2005, but five years later, TNA had a stab at it. Of course, we're talking about Hardcore Justice 2010, and just last month, we talked about Victory Road 2010, where Rob Van Dam would retain the TNA title over a four-way with Jeff Hardy and Mr. Anderson and Abyss. But now there's been a ton of rumors about perhaps Paul Heyman coming in and taking over TNA creative. And, uh, I guess this is another follow-up to tap into that ECW fan base. Let's tackle this as broadly as we can. Were you in favor of a nostalgia show like this? Did you think that the ship had sailed on ECW, that there was no innovation that even the WWF had done their own and. Maybe we had just beat it to death or were you in favor of it and thought there was still meat on the bone because you would still hear chance, you know, ECW from fans. I, you know, I, I was ambivalent about it. I, I didn't feel very strongly one way or the other. I think my general sense was, you know, WWE did it and they did it really well. I was a part of it. And, you know, a couple things that WWE did that really mattered that weren't able to be replicated, of course, was, you know, Paul Heyman on camera. Paul Heyman was the face of ECW, much like Mr. McMahon was when Mr. McMahon was active as a character, you know, in WWE, or I was when I was active in the NWO on camera, you know, Paul was, Paul was the brand in many respects. Uh, and obviously TNA didn't have that. <clears throat> the other thing that WCW did very, very well was uh, filming uh, at, at the ballroom in New York. Uh, what was the name of that venue again? I, f- I forget the uh, name of the venue. Hammerstein Ballroom. Hammerstein Ballroom, which was, again, you know, synonymous in, in the eyes of, of many fans with ECW. So, you know, those two things alone um, – really made the WWE version uh, of the reunion in 2005, I guess, really stand out. It, it was a fun show. As you know, I performed on the show as a character. It was a blast for me. It was probably one of the mo- more fun times I've ever had just because of the heat, the proximity, the heat in the audience and the proximity of the audience to the ring. I mean, it was packed in there nice and tight. So the energy was palpable. Um, and it was really a blast. And, you know, those are elements that TNA just didn't have. And I guess I probably felt like, man, it's one thing to go home again and revisit the past. It's another thing to go and revisit it twice and not really be able to have some of the core elements. So I, I, I didn't feel strongly about it one way or the other, but I didn't really have very high expectations either. Let's jump into the news and notes as we head into the show. Meltzer would write for the second straight month in the days leading to the TNA pay-per-view Dixie Carter started talking about an industry changing surprise last month. She backed off at the end and then tried to twist words saying she didn't mean it would be at the pay-per-view. Uh, but would be slowly obvious. And then for the second straight month, there was no surprise other than an ECW reunion angle that people could clearly see coming. The surprising question was an attempt to bring in Paul Heyman to book the company midweek. When Carter talked about how you would never guess who I just met with, she had actually just met with Heyman and clearly based on everything being said internally, they believed the deal was imminent. Jeff Jarrett even began giving hints about the identity of a new person coming in. The plan was for Heyman to arrive as the leader of the ECW contingent on the pay-per-view. 
But Heyman stated a week before at UFC 116 that, that wasn't happening and it didn't happen. I know you weren't exactly in the office here, but how close do you believe this came to actually becoming a reality? Was it ever that close, do you think, Heyman coming in? I, you know, I don't know. I, 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 because I wasn't a part of it, it, it's hard for me to chime in on whether or not I thought it was real or not or how real or not it was. <clears throat> Knowing Paul the way I knew him back then and, and subsequently as I've gotten to know him even more, having worked with him in WWE, um, I'm sure Paul was charming. I'm sure Paul was persuasive. I'm sure Paul was very charismatic and possibly all of those things led Dixie to believe that a deal was imminent, but I just find it very difficult to believe at any point knowing Paul then and now that he was ever really serious about it. Meltzer would write, uh, the game is still in play and there are two major impasses involved. The first is that Heyman doesn't believe a booking change alone can turn TNA around and he doesn't want to be part of failure. And probably could have hooked up a consulting job with WWE if he wanted to stay in the business. He wants the power to bring in his own crew, both wrestlers and front office, but was not offered that power. Heyman has said if he's going to come in, he wants to be in the position that the Fertitta brothers put Dana White in when they bought the UFC in 2001 with the ability to succeed or fail on his own. He wants to hire his own crew, both because he's not impressed with many people on the office staff or the results TNA has. And if he brings in his own people, those people will be loyal to him and not to Jeff Jarrett or Eric Bischoff or whoever got him in and won't politically undermine him in an attempt to get him out of power. There, there's no guarantee he can turn it around and it may not be possible to put big numbers on the board for pro wrestling if you aren't WWE today. Heyman, also in wanting to be in that same Dana White role, wants ownership points in the company. He made clear his goal, which would to make the company viable, increase its market share, and eventually have points in a company that does an IPO, which is how the McMahon family went from being wealthy to filthy rich. So there's a lot to unpack here. I'm sure you've heard this Dana White analogy before. Do you think that's the only way that, or would that have been a way? that it could have worked because, you know, even re very recently, AJ Styles has come out and said, Hey, TNA was doing great until Dixie Carter ruined it. And, you know, I know you've never said that explicitly here on the show, but I do think one of the major differences that has always made Vince successful is it is his money. And he, you know, the, the buck stopped with him and he obviously had quote unquote ownership points. He was the freaking owner. I guess I could get behind the idea that some of the gamesmanship goes away under this type of scenario. What do you think of it? I think it's a fantasy. Um, I, I do believe based on what Dave wrote in that excerpt that you just read that Dave was probably talking directly to Paul Heyman yep. because much of that, um, much of that position sounds very much like Paul Heyman's voice. So I, I, I think that was probably a direct quote, quote or, or close to it from Heyman to Meltzer and, and Meltzer to the, to, to his dirt sheet. Um, that being said, no way in hell that was going to happen. 
And, and number one, it wouldn't have made any difference, you know, if he would have, if Paul would have had five points in a company or ten points in a company, unless you're a majority shareholder in a private company, I guess, or or in a public. Uh, you can have partners in a private company, but somebody has to be the majority decision. That was never going to be Paul Heyman in any scenario. There's just not enough mushrooms that you can dry and feast on and hallucinate enough to try to imagine a scenario where the Carters were going to give Paul Heyman control over their, and it was rumored to be at some point, 35 or $40 million investment in TNA originally. I don't know if that number is accurate or not. I'm repeating second or third hand information. I hold myself to the same standard that I would hold any dirt sheet writer to. Um, I just want to make clear. I don't know if that number is accurate, but if it's even close, you know, to imagine a scenario where the Carters who didn't know Paul Heyman and probably didn't know much about Paul Heyman other than what Dixie told him and what they could read on a dirt sheet site. Um, there's no way that they were going to give, they wouldn't give Dixie control of the company for God's sake. Why would they give it to Paul Heyman? So yeah, it's cool. It's a cool scenario. Sounded really good. And that would be a good position for Paul to take publicly through Dave Meltzer, but it was unrealistic as hell. Okay. Let's run a timeout right now and remind you that if you like sex, you're going to love bluechew.com. Bluechew offers men a performance enhancement for the bedroom and at bluechew.com. You get the world's first chewable that has the same active ingredients as both Viagra and Cialis. Here's how it works. A bluechew.com affiliated physician will work with you to find the right dosage and active ingredient that's best for you and your body. And chewables can work faster. And chewables from Bluetooth can be taken on a full or an empty stomach. And oh, by the way, the online physician console is free, so it's cheaper than those other two. It only takes a few minutes to connect with a bluechew.com affiliated physician. And if you qualify, you get prescribed online very quickly. There's no in-person doctor visit, no awkward conversation, no waiting in line at a pharmacy. Ships directly to your door in discreet packaging. And by the way, we should mention these chewables from BlueChew.com are made in the USA and prescribed online by a doctor. BlueChew is going to give you the confidence you want every time you're in bed. You and your partner will love it. So chew it and do it. And here's a great deal for you guys. Just because you listen to this podcast... You can visit bluechew.com and get your first order for free when you use promo code 83 weeks. Just pay $5 shipping. That's B L U E C H E W.com and the promo code is 83 weeks. And we thank them for sponsoring the podcast and your next hard on. We should mention that Heyman is discussing here, I, I assume, with Dave that he would agree to make one television appearance to let everyone know he was coming. But after that, he didn't want to be an on-camera persona. You know, when people talk about greatest manager ever, I mean, they always talk about Bobby Heenan. But in more recent years, with the great promo work that Paul Heyman has done for Brock Lesnar, people started to say, man, this guy really is one of the all-time great managers. But we see here that he doesn't really prefer to be an on-camera or at least that's what's written he wanted to be behind the scenes do you think his real passion is behind the scenes yeah definitely i mean paul is look paul has his faults let's let's and i like paul i consider paul a friend 
but just as I have my faults and weaknesses and, and so do you, Conrad, and, 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 and so does my wife and everybody. So do my kids, everybody does. Nobody's freaking perfect. Um, but I can certain I've seen Paul behind the scenes and I've listened to Paul when he's passionate about a story or talent or, or, or an angle or anything that, that involves creative behind the scenes and truly is his passion. I don't think there's any question about that. And I, and I think I can certainly understand, you know, Paul's has, you know, hesitating to be on camera again. You know, there's a certain point in your life where, you know, that on camera, on camera role is perfect and it's ideal. And you're, you're, you're at a certain stage in your life or your career where it makes all kinds of sense. But after you've done it for quite a few years, you've kind of done everything there is to do mm-hmm. in, in that kind of authority role figure or, or as a manager per se, you've kind of done it all or you feel like you have at least and you've checked all those boxes and you want to move on and focus on the things that you're really passionate about, even though you may be great on camera. And I'll speak for myself, even though there were times when I was pretty good on camera, it got to the point where it wasn't really that challenging anymore because I was playing the same role week in and week out with different talent. And, you know, yeah, a little different story. The setups were a little bit different, but the character never really evolved. And after a couple of years, you know, it's just not that challenging. Whereas, you know, creatively behind the scenes and, and strategically and, and growing the business, that's also, you know, very challenging for for someone like Paul. And I could see where he was kind of ready to put the, the on-camera career behind him and, and focus on things behind the scenes. I think, you know, him, you know, Paul managing, you know, Brock made perfect sense. You know, Brock was a lot of things, but a great promo wasn't one of them. And... Paul has probably more ability than anybody in the industry over the last 10 or 15 years to get on that mic and really tell a great story for someone like Brock, who isn't very effective with a microphone in his hand. But uh, I, I doubt that Paul was, you know, I could see where Paul really wasn't interested in pursuing an on-camera role because it, it, it actually, and it does take away, it distracts you from the things that you really should be focused on. It's not easy to be an on-camera talent and run things behind the scenes or even be really involved in things behind the scenes. Um, It complicates things. So I understand that. Let's talk a little bit about, you know, what else is mentioned here because your boy Russo comes up. Uh, Meltzer would write, Heyman, on the other hand, said he was not. Well, let me back that up. He does mention Russo in here somewhere. We'll come back to it. He does say, though, in the newsletter, my apologies to everyone listening at home. I'm sick. I'm on some meds. I'm not feeling myself, but we're going to get you a good show here. Heyman, on the other hand, said he was not in favor of the ECW angle, feeling TNA's big problem was the idea that it's a promotion out of touch with an aging roster. Bringing in the ECW cast of the 90s is not a way to build the future, and if Hogan and Flair didn't have legs, most likely this concept may pull ratings up for a few weeks possibly deliver a buy rate above the normal levels, but it's not curing any problems. Whoever is in charge of TNA needs a three to five year plan. I think that's, I mean, that's sort of always been the case with wrestling, right? If you, if you're bringing back a, a nostalgia pop, if you will, or a nostalgia act, someone from the past, it is good for that one time pop or a short term shot in the arm, but long term, those folks can't be building blocks for your company, right? Well, and it's yes, you're absolutely right, and then some. 
you know, one, there are ways to use legends, if you will, or, or former big names, whatever you want to call them. We'll, we'll call them legends, even though it's, you know, kind of a WWE term, but there's a lot of, there's a lot of great ways you can use legends. I mean, if you look at A&E or AEW right now, the way they're using Arne Anderson as a coach for Cody Rhodes as an example, uh, or Tully Blanchard, you know, you're giving credibility and, and you're giving the rub, if you will, to that young talent, to that new talent, you're giving them credibility by using the, the established stars or legends who are obviously past their prime in terms of being performers, in-ring performers. But if you go too far with that, you know, you, you can get too hop, top, too, too top heavy with, with that kind of talent. And it, instead of it adding to the show, it begins to take away from the show. And like I said, I think AEW is doing it great. I think WWE, when they use legends, they've, they've, they really do it well, as we saw in this last WrestleMania with Undertaker, for example. Um, but you have to be really careful. And I think, you know, Dave was right, whether it was Dave's perspective or Dave was hearing from Paul, um, bringing back ECW. And I, you know, I sat and watched the show this morning to prep for this podcast and, you know, it was what it was. And I'm sure there were, you know, fans that were, you know, big time ECW fans back in the day that got a kick out of the nostalgia and, and seeing some of the, the stars from ECW back when it was hot, but you know, we're what 10 years out of that now, 15 years away from that now. And a lot of this talent is, they'd have been better off <laughs> being used to elevate young talent as opposed to getting in the ring and performing. But you know, they, they got, they had a blast. That's the one thing I did walk away from when I watched the show is it, the wrestling. It was what it was and it, it wasn't pretty. It wasn't designed to be pretty. Nobody went into this pay-per-view thinking there was going to be five-star matches. Um, but you did get a, a heavy dose of nostalgia, and the crowd reaction was very positive for it. But it's certainly not going to pull you in the right direction um, in terms of growth. It's just a, it's just a it's just a pay-per-view where everybody got to got to get go back and kind of look at some of the stars that they grew up on or were fans of 15 years prior. And here they are again, but it's certainly not a growth strategy. It's just so curious to me that you've got two of the biggest performers of all time, known ratings draws, Hogan and Flair, and that didn't hit. And we think, well, maybe this is the magic bullet. Uh, well, but, but again, you, you know, you have to know Dixie Carter. Um, she was, she was vulnerable to anybody that had a passionate idea. And, and, and I'm not taking, believe me, I'm not, I like Tommy dreamer and obviously bully and I are pretty tight. Uh, Al snow. I think the world of, there's a lot of guys that were part of ECW and a part of this event actually in TNA that I'm, you know, I'm very close to, and I look forward to seeing. So what I'm about to say is not designed to be critical in any way, but the aforementioned group, Bully, Devon, Al Snow, Simon Diamond, you know, all of those guys were, you know, right there in Dixie's ear on a pretty regular basis. And of course they were excited about it. Of course they wanted to get the, the band back together again, you know, for one more time and have a blast. And it was fun for them. And I get that. 
but I also can understand how easily Dixie was persuaded to give this thing a shot. And, you know, Dixie was always hoping for that lightning in the bottle, that that big decision that was going to be, as you pointed out, that was going to change the industry forever. You know, she she made those types of claims and teases on such a regular basis that they they began to be kind of an, an inside joke within TNA. Every time she said something like that, everybody's eyes just rolled. But, you know, I get it. I understand why she did it. I understand why the guys that probably convinced her to do it or encouraged her to do it uh, were excited about it. And I understand why a certain percentage of the fans, you know, got off on it. You know, wrestling fans love nostalgia. That's why you and I are doing this show. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, of course. That's what it's all about. Um, man, oh, we'll move on. But somebody wrote some things on Twitter that I feel like you're going to want to respond to. But we do that over at adfreeshows.com. Uh, we're going to... Uh, give you a chance to do that in another episode of Eric fires back, but let's talk about this TNA piece of business here. I think the original idea or one of the original ideas floated according to the observer is they wanted Paul to be the on camera leader of the CCW faction. He doesn't want to do that. As we said, he's cool with the one-off, but the other question is, Hey, if he's going to come in as head of creative, where does that leave your old pal Vince Russo? It's written in the observer that Vince Russo would be moving into a role in television production. How do you think he would have done in that? I mean, and and I know that most people are thinking I'm setting you up to shit on him, but we, we fans have seen some great behind the scenes footage of him working with talents in the WWF on specific shots and vignettes. And one of the criticisms that, you know, people often overlook because there's so much criticism to go around for everybody yourself Vince Russo. I mean, if you're a hater, you're a hater, but one, one thing you can't debate is everybody had a storyline when Russo was writing TV. It wasn't just the, the top of the card that was getting some attention with the pencil. Everybody had something. They had a story, they had stakes, whatever the case may be. And we've seen some really fascinating footage of him working with talents. And, and doing a great job conveying his vision and maybe Vince McMahon's vision. But I wonder, because you were there, you worked, you worked with him a little bit. How do you think he would have done if you maybe took some of that creative pressure off of him and now it was just, hey, let's help facilitate this in a more producer category? I think Russo would have made a good producer, maybe even a great producer. You know, you know we, we, the term producer can mean different things to different types of productions. Um, generally, when I think of a, of a producer, I think of someone who is really putting all of the pieces together, whatever those pieces may be. I, uh, a project that I'm working on right now for Netflix, for example, I, I am a producer and I'll get a credit as a producer, but I'm not involved at all in the creative process. I was very instrumental in putting the pieces and the the talent and the the, the buyers and the right director and all that's that's what I did and, and was a part of. I didn't do it by myself, but that's what I was really a part of as a producer. In in wrestling, we use the term producer. We used to call them agents, and agents primarily were former wrestlers that could communicate how to lay out a match or improve a match that somebody else laid out to make sure that the story was in the ring was consistent with the story that was going on on, on paper and the arc that had been laid out. 
I think Russo would not have been good as an agent slash producer. I think Russo's strengths probably lie in the fact that he was a good director, meaning if all of the pieces were already put together, the show is already laid out and now it's time to try to get the best performance out of a talent in an interview in particular, because that's probably where Ben's strengths were more than anywhere else. Certainly not in the ring. He had no strengths. He had no, no concept of how to tell a story in the ring, in my opinion, but he was really good at bringing out the best in talent in terms of their, ba- their, their backstage uh, promos or backstage scenes, if you will, whatever it may be. He was really good at that. And if he would have been smart, um, he would have, you know, probably leaned into that role and leaned out of creative as much because he sucked at creative. He really did suck. He really didn't have a, a, a great idea how to, from a, from an architectural perspective, lay out a story. You know, put lay out a blueprint that you can put up on a board that people can see when certain things are going to happen through over the course of that arc and how it was going to impact the story and what you could really take advantage of to create the most emotion. That's not what Russo was good at, but he was pretty good, if not better than good. I won't call him great, but he was close in terms of being a director and, and directing talent and getting the best performance out of them. Okay, we've got to run another timeout right now, and I want to remind you something that we've already been talking about here on the show. It's been reported that Americans are overpaying on car insurance by over $21 billion. Searching for a better deal can take hours and typically results in a barrage of unwanted spam calls until now. Thanks to TheZebra.com. TheZebra.com is the nation's leading car insurance comparison site because it's the only place you can compare quotes side by side from over a hundred different providers and choose the best for you in 90 seconds or less. Plus they never sell your information to the spammers. So you won't get all those unwanted calls or emails. You just answer a few questions on a simple fast form and they find you the best rates and coverage in your state. TechCrunch calls the zebra kayak for auto insurance. The best part is it's completely free. You can save up to $670 a year using thezebra.com. With states reopening and people back on the road, the Zebra is committed to making sure you're covered at the lowest possible price. But how much can you save on car and home insurance? Go today and start saving at thezebra.com slash 83 weeks. That's thezebra.com slash 83 weeks. Spelled T-H-E-Z-E-B-R-A dot com slash 83 weeks and we thank the zebra.com for sponsoring today's podcast let's talk about what's happening on camera on the july 12th tv tna would shoot the ecw angle but instead of Heyman as the main person it becomes mick foley and tommy dreamer and the next night they announced that the august 8th hardcore justice or hard justice pay-per-view would be similar to the one night stand show from 2005 Meltzer would say as a one-time deal, there's nothing wrong with it. It should be considerably better than anything TNA would put on at the time, but it solves none of the problems. And even if successful for a night may just dig the hole deeper because it perpetuates the feeling to onlookers that this is the home of aging guys that were WWE discards. You know, I know that you, uh, 
have sort of ranted and raved on this show before about the phrase homegrown talent. But did you feel like this is maybe deviating even too far away from whatever quote unquote homegrown talent you had to bring in a bunch of guys just for one night? No, I don't think so at all. Look, you got to break it up. You know, I mean, when you're seeing the same talent week in and week out for 52 weeks a year, it doesn't hurt to give people a break. You know, I, the, the idea of having a show like this, that's a spectacle, not really storyline driven. I mean, there were, I guess, storylines to a certain extent, but not what I would consider a real storyline. Um, it was a spectacle. It, it was what it was. It was a trip down memory lane for two and a half hours. And as such, I think it, it worked as well as it could possibly work given the circumstances that we've already discussed in terms of what they did have and what they didn't have. But I, I, I don't think it took away from talent. I don't think one pay-per-view is good or bad is going to determine the success or failure of a company as a whole. Um, Granted, you want to put together as many great pay-per-views as you can and generate as much revenue as you can. That's the way the world keeps turning, you know, successfully. But, you know, to, to, to put on a show like this and use all kinds of brand new, not brand new, obviously, but, you know, talent that you hadn't otherwise seen on the show, I, I don't think it took anything away from anybody. Let's, uh, let's talk about how we start to execute it on TV. Um, elsewhere, right. The ECW angle started with Abyss and Rob Van Dam coming down to the ring and Abyss saying it's time to reveal the big secret about how they're going to take over TNA and there's nothing Dixie Carter could do about it. But Rob Van Dam turns on Abyss and lays him out with the belt. Abyss makes a comeback, but then goes to use the board with nails until Jesse Neal and Shannon Moore come out. But Abyss, Abyss lays them both out. That brings Foley and Dreamer and Raven and Stevie Richards and Rhino out. And they're just running roughshod over wrestlers like uh, Doug Williams, Okada, and Magnus. They're all left laying. That wasn't a good idea. No. <laughs> that I, was like, not a good idea. Like, what's weird is we've got Simon Diamond and Al Snow. And, I mean, all the ECW guys are laying everyone out, including Jeff Jarrett. And it feels like it's a takeover. But then Dixie Carter reveals, no, I invited them. So it's not really a takeover, but it is. why would she invite guys to come beat up her current roster that she's pumped? I don't get it. What's going on with this? Who booked this shit? Uh, not me. Um, the good news was in 2010, I was really not that involved in overall booking or, or creative at, at TNA. I was primarily focused on Hogan related stuff and anything that I might be doing on camera. I tried to stay away from a lot of the other creative decisions. It, again, wasn't my role when I was hired and I certainly had nothing to do with this. Not, and again, not, that's not a shot. That's not a subtle shot. It's just that if there was anybody in, in TNA creative or even close to it at that time that should not have been involved in an ECW like nostalgia pay-per-view, that would be me. I just, it wasn't my style. I had no feel for, you know, kind of the hardcore buffet, if you will. Uh, it just wasn't my cup of tea. So I had zero to do with this. Wh whoever, um, set that up. I don't know who did it. I don't know if Russo was involved in it or if Tommy Dreamer or, and, and Al Snow and Bully and everybody, you know, all got together and laid it out. I have no idea. But that setup and to open things up that way to have a bunch of aging um, 
performers who don't who really weren't at the top of their game come in and lay out your roster like that, that was a bad idea compounded only by having Dixie Carter come out and say, yeah, I called him and asked him to stop by. That's pretty ridiculous. You know, Magnus is going to be your champ for a long, long time. I think most people consider Doug Williams in this era uh, the greatest, you know, British wrestler. And then Okada, we know he's going to go on to become, you know, one of the biggest legends in New Japan history. And they're getting laid out by guys who haven't really been at the top of their game in years. And yeah. it's less than ideal. That's being kind, Conrad. You, you, you're so much kinder when you're not feeling well. Yeah, I'm going to work on that. Okay. Uh, w- with all this going on, Meltzer would write, neither Hogan nor Bischoff were at television. Hogan was against Heyman coming in. Bischoff claimed dur- days earlier that he was putting family in front of business this week and would return at the next set of tapings. During the Victory Road pay-per-view, their names were only mentioned in passing. Explain the putting family in front. Were you taking a vacation with the kids during this era, or what was going on that week? It was my anniversary. Oh, there you go. It was my anniversary week, and Lori and I always, not always, but generally take a trip of sorts. Sometimes it's a little trip, an overnighter. Sometimes it's four or five days, sometimes longer. But um, and it, 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 part of it was that. That wasn't the sole reason. Part of it was the fact that we, Lori and I had plans and it was our anniversary that week. Uh, the other part of it was there was no reason for me to be there. Hogan, as I said earlier, you know, people, and again, context is king, folks. If you're listening to this, you already know that. But just to reiterate, you know, context, when I was hired at TNA, I was Jimmy hearted into the deal by Hulk <laughs> simply, simply because Hulk wanted me to have his back creatively and make sure he wasn't being put into positions he didn't want to be put into. And to a degree, uh, I ended up on camera as well um, at Dixie's request, not mine. I didn't really want to be on camera in TNA either, but it was part of the gig. Um, But there was nothing for me to do on this pay-per-view. I had no hand in writing it. I had no hand in producing it. I had no, no reason to be on camera for it, so there was no reason for me to be there. Talk to me a little bit about Hogan, the way it's written here, him not really being a fan of Heyman coming in. That's, that's just, it's again, that's Dave Meltzer making shit up. It's not true. I, I, I guarantee you Dave Meltzer never had a conversation with, with Hulk Hogan where Hulk Hogan had anything negative to say about Paul Heyman. That's, that's Dave Meltzer's unique ability to get inside of minds of people that he doesn't know that he's never had a conversation with about a subject that he's talking about or writing about. And it's also a way for, for Dave to kind of position Hulk Hogan the way Dave likes to position Hulk Hogan with Dave's audience. He's, he's always been an anti Hulk Hogan guy. So if there's a way to throw a little shit on Hulk Hogan by making a claim that Hogan was against Heyman coming in. Hulk didn't care. Hulk hadn't, I'm not even sure Hulk knew about the conversations and the rumors. Honest to God, I don't think he did. He and I never talked about it. I mean, I knew that Dixie was having conversations with Paul. I was supportive of those conversations. I had no, I had a contract. I had no, I had no dog in the fight. You know, my deal was my deal, whether Paul Heyman came in or 
you know, Steven Spielberg came in or whoever came in, it didn't matter. Um, I, I was curious certainly, but I don't think Hulk and I ever had a conversation about it. It just wasn't that big a deal. So from your understanding, I mean, I guess the thing I'm, I'm sort of lost on is when would they have ever spent any time together at all? Who's that? Hogan and Heyman. Well, they spent time together in WWE. And, and I, and I know for a fact, you know, I've Hulk and I have had conversations over the last 12 months where Paul's name came up and Hulk has never said anything to indicate to me that he had anything but respect for Paul. Okay. Let's keep it going here. Um, Meltzer would write, what will be interesting to note is the ratings over the next month with this angle. It's not a secret that Spike wasn't happy with ratings being significantly down from the same period last year. The show still does well above Spike's primetime average. However, if ratings go up even short-term based on this angle, it will alleviate pressure. Don't expect Ugh. a long-term boost. We saw with Hogan and Flair a huge boost for a couple of weeks and then back to normal. And then a month out, it was below normal. And I don't see have this having the upward short-term value of those additions. You made an unaudible gasp there. Uh, you're taking it, or am I, I assume you're sort of uh, doing that because you're like, how would he know that Spike wasn't happy with the rating? Or, Well, not only how would he know, but the opposite was true. Now, look, every network is always going to want to improve their ratings. But even in 2010, television was changing. Right. It's certainly a lot different now, but I think Spike was, and I, look, I had direct conversations with Kevin K at Spike TV I, I and, and, and Scott Fishman, who was our, really our day-to-day -day liaison, but I, I had regular conversations, good, positive, constructive conversations with Kevin K and the honest ones too. They were not, it, 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 nobody sugarcoated anything. You know, Kevin was really good about that. He was very direct, very clear, um, and consistent with the way he looked at things. And Spike was excited about the possibility of, of where TNA could go. And granted the year over year numbers weren't as strong for TNA as they probably wish they were, but they weren't as strong for anything as they were a year earlier. Meaning there were other programs on the network. Everything across the boards was getting more difficult. And we've seen that now, certainly over the last 10 years where we've gone from, you know, Monday nights having, depending on how you want to really interpret ratings and, and audience went from having probably eight to 10 million viewers between nitro and, and Monday night raw to Monday night raw struggling to hold on to 2 million viewers today. Where do those 8 million viewers go? <laughs> They're out there somewhere, but they found other things to entertain them. And that, that same thing was going on even in 2010, not to the degree that it's going on now, but it was starting back then with, TiVo and DVRs and, and that type of thing. And people fast forwarding through commercials and taping their shows because they just didn't want to sit through three minutes of commercials every seven minutes. So all of those things impacted all of television, including impact, but at no time, at no time did Kevin Kay or Scott Fishman or anybody suggest to me that there was any level of concern on the year over year analysis. That's Dave Meltzer trying to sound so much smarter than he really is. 
by interjecting his perspective on what Spike must be thinking based on numbers that are available in the public domain. That's really what Dave does. As we all settle into this new normal version of summer, Bespoke Post is here with customized Box of Awesome collection for guys guaranteed to upgrade your life. And I got to tell you, we have been bragging about this for what feels like years here on the show. Bespoke Post is making both Eric and I look like cooler guys than we really are. You see, Bespoke Post is only going to send guys the best stuff every month. No matter what you're into, Box of Awesome has you covered. From style and grooming goods to barware to cooking tools to outdoor gear, Box of Awesome has carefully built collections for every part of your life. Seriously, when you go check out the website, they're going to ask you, hey, are you into barware and mixology? Do you want some home decor and accessories? What about styles? Stuff like watches and sunglasses and even ties and socks. Of course, they've got clothing in there with jackets and t-shirts and workout clothes. Maybe you're like Eric, you want to rock some stuff from cigars and tobacco? I'm sure that my wife would be more impressed if I clicked kitchen and cooking. I don't know that I want an apron, so I'm going to click not interested on that. But I love the shaving supplies and men's grooming. How about camping and outdoors? That's right up Eric's alley. You can even say, nope, I'm more of a travel guy. Hook me up with a messenger bag or a weekend duffel. But maybe, well, hell, everybody listening to this would enjoy the music and tech. That's going to include your headphones, your laptop sleeves, speakers, portable chargers. They really do have something for everybody. To get started, take the quiz at boxawesome.com, and your answers will help them pick the right box for you. They release new boxes every month across a ton of categories. It's free to sign up, and you can skip a month or cancel any time. Each box only costs 45 bucks but it has over $70 worth of gear inside. And right now you can get 20% off your first monthly box when you sign up at boxofawesome.com and enter promo code 83weeks at checkout. That's boxofawesome.com. Use the promo code 83weeks for 20% off your first box. And we thank boxofawesome.com for sponsoring today's podcast. Keep it moving here. I do want to talk about where the ratings were because we did mention that they were down. And the impact rating on average in April of 09 is a 1.26. The average rating in April of 10 is a 0.79. So a 37% decrease year over year. But in this era, you're working on a different kind of TV show. Micro Championship Wrestling. <laughs> it comes out they're going to do a TV taping on August 6th in Austin. And Meltzer would write, at this point, we haven't heard anything on the show being sold, but this is the promotion that Eric Bischoff is putting together the TV for and trying to get a TV deal for. We know it would ultimately air, but how in the world did you decide to get in a micro championship wrestling business? Yeah, no, no we did a deal with uh, True TV and, and aired it uh, on True. And I was, I was sitting at home one day and Hulk called me. He said, "Hey, brother, I want to I want to introduce you to somebody by the name of Johnny Green." And I had known Johnny. I I didn't know him well. I we had crossed paths, you know, in WCW, but probably never had more of a conversation other than, "Hey, how are you? Good to meet you. Good luck tonight." Was probably the extent of our conversations. Uh, but uh, Johnny Green was was he lived down in Florida. Uh, he was friends with Hulk, and Johnny had this promotion called Micro Championship Wrestling. 
And the entire roster was made up of little people, a.k.a. digits. And, and Hulk said, hey, you know, I want to introduce you to this guy. He's got this idea and, you know, it'd make a great reality show. And Eric, you and Jason are doing reality shows. Here, you guys go talk. You know, I said, out of courtesy uh, and respect for our friendship, I, I talked to Johnny about it. And he sent me some video and he sent me some stills. And I went, hmm. This could be highly entertaining. And I put a reel together and took it to some of the people we knew over at True TV, and they loved it. And, yeah, we shot it. I, I didn't have any stake in the promotion. It wasn't my wrestling promotion. I was simply taking advantage of something that already existed and was able to sell and produce a television show based on it. And it was, and it was a lot of fun. I met a lot of really cool people doing it. I'm glad I did it. Fascinating to me. I'm sure we'll do a whole show on it some other time. Uh, were you spending a lot of time on both shows or did micro just require a short amount of time? No. Well, once we started shooting it, it, it took a lot. I mean, anytime that you're shooting on location, as we did with micro micro championship wrestling, you know, you, you're there, you're there for the full shoot. It's grueling. It's not fun. It's, you know, so many people think that producing a television show is, you know, a great time or exciting or whatever you think it is. It's just like any other job. It's work and it's not always fun work. Um, but yeah, I was putting a lot of time into that, but yeah, again, my, my responsibilities at TNA contractually and otherwise were such that it, it didn't really take up a lot of my time. I would look over the creative that was sent to me and suggested for Hulk or myself, and I'd review it. And if I felt like something needed to be changed, I'd give Russo a call and say, look, you got to tweak this or suggest something else to make it work a little bit better for everybody, or at least for, from my point of view, work better for Hulk or I. Um, and then I'd fire it back and they'd, you know, come back with changes. So it wasn't like TNA was my full-time gig by any stretch of the imagination. So I had plenty of time to, to devote to the shows at that time in 2010, Jason and I probably had three or four different shows in production at any given moment, had over a hundred people, uh, all freelancers, of course, well, not all, we had probably five or six full-time staff that were dedicated to us, but we had a lot of freelance producers and editors and writers and all of that, probably at different points, probably upwards of over a hundred people working on different shows. So that was really the majority of my time. Um, whereas TNA was really a, a part-time gig for, for a long time. It ended up being different, but in 2010, it was definitely a part-time gig. I do want to ask about a comment, uh, that you responded to the gist is Paul Heyman. I had spent in this era, we should remember Brock Lesnar's on top of the world in the UFC. And he spent a week in Las Vegas working with the UFC and seeing how they promoted their last show and basically said pro wrestling and the, the pro wrestling business rather needs to get its shit together. And you responded quote, as far as this comment goes, I don't have a clue what context the comment was made in. People have a tendency to want to compare MMA to professional wrestling. And for the life of me, I just can't figure out why it's not even apples and oranges. As I've said before, it's apples and bricks. One is real sport and the other is scripted entertainment. And beyond that, if anyone can point out any similarities between the two and why wrestling should modify its business model based on what's happening in MMA, I would be very interested in hearing it because the last time I checked, they're two entirely different products. 
And Meltzer would write, it's mind-boggling in 2010 that someone running a wrestling company could be so out of touch with their audience. Do you agree with yourself 10 years later that it's still way, way different, or do you see some similarities between the two? No, I was right in 2010, and I would say the same exact thing today. The only thing that, and it's funny, out of touch, it's something that Dave likes to say a lot. If you, if anybody looks at MMA and looks at professional wrestling and sees anything other than the fact that they're both, for the most part, pay-per-view and television models, that's it. How can you look at something that is scripted entertainment, professional wrestling, highly scripted? There is nothing at all competitive about it beyond the political nature of it and trying to excel as a talent. Is the same true for the music industry? Should the music industry model itself after MMA? Should the movie industry model itself after MMA. Or maybe if you're a book author, you should model your books or your the way you approach marketing your books on MMA. What the fuck does one have to do with the other unless it's in your mind as a fan? Because somehow they both involve, one involves scripted fantasy combat and the other one is a legitimate athletic contest. There is no similarity. Now, you can find similarities and you can find parallels in almost anything. You know, watch what happens the next time the Olympics come around, the way the Olympics are promoted. And it's promoted based on stories and backstory and human drama and emotion. Well, of course, those are all things that UFC has, that professional wrestling has, that NFL has that even, you know, the NBA has, it's all backstory drama. Human relationships is always the kind of foundation of everything that people promote and talk about and discuss. Watch ESPN sports center. All they're talking about is the relationships, the politics, all of the things that involves everything other than the actual physical game itself. So if you want to draw some parallels, you can find them, but to suggest that, WWE or AEW or back in 2010, TNA could look at UFC and find something there other than maybe some, some production technique perhaps, or a new way of shooting an interview or something like that. Yeah, I'll throw that in. But to suggest that there's some kind of really close parallel between the two, just, I think further sheds light on how ignorant Dave is, and he thinks he's in touch, but he's just kidding himself. No, I stand by it today. They're, they're two separate products. They're two separate things. Something, uh, that I think is missing in wrestling, especially with the way wrestling is done now with no interaction from fans. I think we have to tell some of the story outside of the ring like whenever you see a ufc fighter or a boxer and they're trying to to sell you on the pay-per-view when they're telling their story and saying whatever they've got to say they're not coming out in their tidy whities in an empty arena in a ring uh holding a microphone and just trying to say it themselves we get to see the context of hey here's how this boxer trains here's where he lives here's his family here's his training partners uh, here's his story. Here's his why. Here's his motivation. I think that would resonate with the masses. 
because if I'm if my mom is flipping through the channels and she sees a guy in a wrestling ring, she's gonna say, "Oh, I don't want to watch that shit." But if it's a profile of the guy, she'll be in. And I've always made that analogy because my mom absolutely hates watching football, but she doesn't miss an episode of HBO's Hard Knocks, where it's a story of guys trying to make the team. And and although it is a story about football, it's really a story about the the humans. And football is sort of in the background. And I think if wrestling were presented that way right now, it could make a big difference. And I think the UFC specifically has done a great job of that. Would you disagree? No, I wouldn't disagree with that at all. I, 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 I strongly agree with that. What I would point out, however, is that UFC didn't invent that. Re- wrestling has been doing that for sure. decades. But they quit. Wrestling, wrestling was doing that for decades before UFC even became something anything. So it's not new. It's, it was going on for decades prior to the UFC and it's continues to happen. Now it doesn't happen every single week. You know, the nature of producing wrestling is such, and and the economies of producing wrestling is such, and the time, uh, that's, that's involved in producing wrestling as such time is money, uh, doesn't really provide the opportunity to consistently produce those types of packages. They're generally remote. They require different crews. There's travel involved, you know, storylines change, things change so rapidly in wrestling for a lot of different reasons that don't change in UFC, um, because of the nature of UFC. And you can certainly do things in pay-per-view from a pre-production, uh, perspective in terms of these packages and interviews and profiles and all of that. You can certainly do those for pay-per-view much more easily than you can do them for weekly television. You know, you become, I said this, I think on our last podcast, you know, you could become a slave to your own success. You know, you, you can become a victim to your own success. And once you get to the point where you're producing seven hours of primetime television a week or five hours of primetime television or hell, even two hours of primetime television a week, 52 weeks a year, you know, you've got to do it efficiently and effectively. And that's why so many of the interviews and packages that you see are produced on location because they just don't have the budget or the time really to consistently every week in and out to, to do that type of thing. But I agree with you. You know, well, I, I it's interesting, Conrad, and I'm, I'm going to try to weave this into this discussion as best I can. It was a late night for Mrs. B and I last night, and I'm not firing on all cylinders myself this morning. But back in 1996, I was at Disney MGM Studios. Might have been in the spring or early summer. And this was right about this was pre-NWO, right? I mean, the, the the pieces were starting to fall in place. The outline of the angle was laid out. Scott and Kevin were coming in, all of that. So that, that's about where we were in the timeline of, of NWO. When this story that I read in 1996, it was an article by, or it was an interview with Dick Ebersol. And Dick Ebersol was producing the Summer Olympics, uh, for ABC, I guess, or NBC, whoever it was at the time that was carrying the Olympics. And Dick Ebersol, as you know, has quite a history with Vince McMahon and the WWE, so he was familiar with wrestling. And that's how I knew his name, and that's why he stood out to me when I saw this article. And in the article, somebody asked him in the interview, somebody asked him, what are you going to do differently? Because the interest in the Olympics have kind of been waning. It's people doing a lot of other things in the summertime. What are you going to do differently that's going to 
kind of increase the interest in, in the Olympics. And Dick Ebersole went on to describe in pretty good detail of how he was going to focus on the profiles of the athletes in the backstory, in the drama. And, and, and the sport was important and the event that an athlete was competing in was obviously the focal point of everything, but the story and the human drama and the emotion is created with profile type packages. So you feel as a viewer that you know, you, you're invested in that athlete in whatever sport you happen to follow in the Olympics. So this, this idea that UFC created something that Dave Meltzer felt like, man, professional wrestling could use this. Number one, professional wrestling probably invented it in many respects decades earlier. And number two, yes, wrestling should do more of that. I agree with you, Conrad, if there was a way to do more of it and do it really well, by the way, doing more of it, and doing it really well can be two different things. In fact, almost always is two different things. But that that article that I read probably gave me more of a direction or vision for what I wanted NWO to ultimately be because it was really all about the story and the characters and getting to know the people. And it, it, that, that article resonated with me. I'll never forget it. It was in the Orlando, Orlando Journal in, in sometime in, in probably May of 1996 or so, April perhaps. Anyway, um, yeah, I, I think it's great. The more, the more look, here, here's another example. Do you, do you ever watch The Voice? No, but I know the concept. I know the show. Okay. Well, I, it's not, you know, that's not the type of show I would normally watch, but we have a family friend who's a backup singer. In fact, she, she's, she kind of manages all the other backup singers that are part of the voice. She's a great, very, very close friend of my daughter's and she's her, her name is Kara. She's come out here to Wyoming and hung out with us and all that. But because we know her, we started watching the voice and, uh, I fell in love with the show. Not necessarily because of the musical competition. I'm not really that much of a music guy, but the backstories and the profiles that they did or they do still do for that show made me a fan of people who I otherwise wouldn't have paid attention to. Wouldn't have mattered to me who won or who didn't win. I could care less. They're singing. They all sound good to me because I can't sing a lick. If you can carry a tune <laughs> for three or four bars, you're my hero. Um, but these backstories and the profile pieces that they did for that they do for the voice, for example, really as a viewer got me invested not only in the, the people that were competing on the voice, but made me a really huge fan of the show. Did the UFC create that? Of course not. Wrestling has done the same things. They just can't do it as well because they're doing it. That's a live show. They're shooting on location. It's run and gun. You've got two hours to get all your pre-tapes done, and then you got to move on. I don't think it's a question of professional wrestling learning how to do something that they've already been doing for decades. It's a question of economics more than anything else. Let's talk about the economics of uh, another star perhaps coming in. I had no idea this happened or almost happened. I read this and had to read it again because it seems make-believe. Meltzer writes, there has been some interest in JBL. Layfield has met with Dixie Carter in the past and they got along. She's been trying to bring him in since he retired from WWE after WrestleMania in 2009. At one point, she offered to help co-produce the 
Viper Fighting League MMA group that JBL and Bruce Pritchard tried to run out of Louisville, which didn't last. Those close to JBL said they don't expect him to come in and declined an offer in January when they were looking to load up talent to go to Monday. I can't believe Layfield ever even flirted with the idea of coming in. Did you hear about this? Absolutely not. And I'm pretty tight with JBL. Um, I've known him for a long, long time. I'm not saying it didn't happen. I'm not saying there wasn't a conversation. I don't know. Maybe there was, but he never, this is the first I've heard of it. This as, as you're reading what, what's his name is reporting. Um, this is the first time I've ever heard of such a thing. And I've been out with JBL on many occasions since 2010. And we've talked about a lot of things since 2010 and the subject of JBL coming into TNA was never one of them. So if there was a conversation between JBL and Dixie, yeah, I do believe that. Um, but the idea of JBL coming into TNA, this is the first I've ever heard of it. Guys, if you're like me and every other person working from home, you've been staring at your gray hairs and all your colleagues, gray hairs on these video calls for, it feels like months now. And if you've been thinking about coloring your hair, well, you're not alone. But about two weeks ago, I heard about Madison Reed, Mr. And what caught my attention was the before and after shots of beards. Madison Reed, Mr. Is a gray blending natural color for your hair and your beard. You remember that shoe polish look? Well, there's none of that here. And if you're like me, you're probably not looking for a drastic change. Maybe you just want a little more pepper and maybe a little less salt. Whatever you're going for, Madison Reed Mister makes it easy to find your color match right there on the website. And they deliver it right to your door. And by the way, the process is quick and easy. You just apply the color gel to dry hair and apply the color activator. Wait 10 minutes, then rinse and shampoo. And then the natural looking hair color fades gradually. There's no commitment. Go to madisonreedmister.com. That's Madison Reed MR. Dot com and use the promo code 83 weeks for 10% off plus free shipping on your first box of Madison Reed Mister. One more time, the promo code is 83 weeks and the website is madisonreedmr.com. That's M A D I S O N R E E D M R.com. Madison Reed Mister. Don't forget, Reed is R E E D like butchery. And Mr. is just MR. That's MadisonReadMr.com. And we thank them for sponsoring today's podcast. Check it out. Get rid of those gray hairs. One of the situations that has been discussed here with Heyman in the newsletter is according to one source close to the situation, wink, wink, Heyman outright told Carter of the older legends that they could keep only one. But they'd have to get rid of most of, if not all the others. And she didn't seem to understand why that right there is an issue because Carter has been loyal to stars of the past and Eric Bischoff, Vince Russo and Jeff Jarrett all had the idea that the stars of the nineties when wrestling were hot were much bigger stars than the stars of today. Did you ever hear this theory? And, and if you go back and you look at what Paul did in ECW when they were first, you know, getting their big break on pay-per-view and whatnot, they had one legend. It was Terry Funk and the rest was a cast of, of younger guys trying to sort of make a name for themselves. So I guess that fits in, in what we've seen from him. 
did you hear his theory of, Hey, we only need one of these legends. And, and what do you think of that? I didn't hear it. I tend to believe that that's something that Paul probably said to Dave. Um, I don't know, man. I don't know. You know, I, I don't know really how to react to it. You know, we can talk about ECW and again, this is going to sound like a knock and I'm going to piss off people that I know are good friends of mine. I'm going to apologize in advance for doing so, but so much is made. There's this mystique about TNA that is far greater than any level of success they ever achieved as a television property. It's just a fact people. You can hate me for saying it. I know that for many of the guys and the people that were part of this, you know, TN, or excuse me, this uh, ECW reunion on TNA, it was the most exciting moments of their lives. It was the first time probably in any of their lives that they'd been on television and they had a blast doing it. So to them, it was like the most important thing to them. But if you look at the sheer numbers, revenue generated, people watching the product, any metric that you want to use, ECW was a pimple on a hamster's ass. No more, no less. It reminds me of a bunch of guys, you know, in high school in a small town somewhere in a remote agricultural part of the United States. Let's just pick Nebraska, right? Where football is huge or Texas. Let's just pick Texas, and you have this little school, maybe in a town of about five or 6,000 people. And the kids in that school, they don't get out much. They work on the farms. They work on their ranches. You know, they don't really have a big future. Pretty much everybody that lives in, and I'm describing a lot of small towns, including the one I live in, by the way, currently. You know, most of the kids that, that grow up in that small town, they fall into one of two categories. They're either going to go off to college and do something, you know, away from home and pursue a career that's going to take them away from their small little town or they're going to stay in that small town and continue to work the farm or continue to work the ranch, or maybe get a job in the local body shop or whatever the case may be. But now let's just imagine you've got a, a, a team of high school kids who for many, many years, you know, th that high school football team was a losing team. They just couldn't win no matter what. They never ended up in state. They never even got through regionals, whatever their competitive structure was. And then all of a sudden you got a team of guys in this little town that have a winning football team. And everybody in that small little town thinks this is the greatest football team in the state of Texas. Why? Because it's theirs. It's their, the kids from, you know, their, their little town and they know their parents and they know their brothers and sisters and all that good stuff. Right. And this little team, or this team comes together and they have a winning season and they make it to state. Maybe they even win. Well, for those kids, that's probably for many of them, unfortunately, especially the ones that don't move away and, 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 and pursue careers that take them in, in, into directions that allow them to experience many other different things. But for many of those kids that stay in that small town, that their lives will never be more exciting than that moment. Sure. They'll have kids. They'll get married and all kinds of other things that are important to their lives, but they'll always look back at that moment and go, man, weren't we great? Weren't th this, we were one of the best football teams to ever play the game. And they live in that moment. They, 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 they relive those moments, you know, all the way up until they're in their forties and their fifties. And they get together at class reunions and pat each other in the back and talk about the good old days. That's what ECW was. It was a little small town, 
a wrestling company and the people in it, it was a high spot for them. It was the most important parts of their careers. And many of them went on to, to do much bigger things and become hugely successful because they were able to, to catapult or, 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 or move on from that one big opportunity and the name that they made for themselves in that little town called ECW. And they went on to do big things. A lot of them didn't, by the way, most of them didn't. Some of them did. But for those people who were in that moment, who experienced it at that time, I understand why everybody thinks it was one of the greatest things to happen for a couple of years. But if you go back and look at the number of people that actually watched the show, it was a pimple on a hamster's ass. It wouldn't have survived. It couldn't have survived on a bigger platform where it got more attention. Hell, Paul Heyman, famously, he would use unlicensed music on his show. He'd just find a song he liked and he'd use it for entrance music. Why? Because nobody was watching the damn thing. It was safe. He wasn't going to get sued. Nobody was paying attention. Nobody cared. Now, if that show would have been on a USA network and in prime time, instead of two o'clock in the morning and small remote station that you could only find with two rolls of aluminum foil and a compass, uh, they, they, they wouldn't have lasted five minutes with the nature of the show, but I get why people with the mystique of ESC, ECW is so much bigger than the reality of it is my point. I forgot the question. What the fuck was the question? I love you for that. All right, let's keep it moving here. We're going to talk uh, a little bit more about how they're putting the shows together at this point. Heyman is not in. So Vince Russo and Tommy dreamer are putting it together. And uh, we should mention uh, that it's written in the observer that there's still a bit of a power struggle, and that's something that has been discussed a great deal about, you know, what Dixie's involvement was or wasn't. She, uh, it's written here in the Observer. For better or worse, Carter seemingly won't give anyone the power to hire or fire. Russo wanted to get rid of people, and she blocked that. Ironically, he may be the beneficiary here, since she made it clear to Heyman that Russo has to stay. When the company talked with Jim Ross months back, and they wanted him to turn the company around. He still wasn't going to be given that power. TNA is a very unique company that has both its positives and its negatives. The positives are that Bob Carter is not going to be quick to shut the company down. His daughter is running with the exception of a television station that could argue that the losses are still value in some way because of the producing of the television product. Nobody else in wrestling history has ever stuck with a product like this for so long. There's a lot to unpack there. Let's talk about the last thing first though. You know, historically, when a wrestling company is running into the red, because historically, wrestling companies made their money on live events and pay-per-view and things like that. This is the era where it's becoming more and more a television product. The television rights fees are the way the business is done. Were you at all nervous that, hey, this could be the end of TNA? I mean, WCW was certainly uh, touch and go through for a while. Tony Schiavone has often said, in the final years of WCW, he felt like the company was a coffin on roller skates. And at any moment, this could be their last show. Did you feel that way here? Or did you have the warm and fuzzies from the Carters that they were in it for the long haul? I, I never had any relationship with the Carters. I, I think I met uh, Bob and Janice Carter once when Hulk and I first came in, as well as a couple other members of the Carter family and, and people associated with Panda Energy. Um, there was one, one meeting and it was, 
yay, Rock Hogan's here, celebrate. But, you know, it, it was a more of a social gathering than an opportunity to get to know anybody on, on a business level. Uh, and I may have ha- – I did actually have one meeting with Giannis Carter towards the end, I think probably in 2014 perhaps. 2000, yeah, 2014 I had one meeting with her. Um, so I only knew of Janice and Bob really other than one – quick meeting in Orlando. Um, I only knew of them secondhand and thirdhand. My impression was that Bob Carter, you know, was going to support Dixie no matter what. Janice, on the other hand, was a little different. The, 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 and Bruce could tell you more about the dynamics between the Carters than I could, because Bruce actually worked with them much more closely than I did and had, detailed conversations business-wise that I never had with them. So I know Bruce knows them much, much better than I do. My impression from a distance was that, you know, Bob Carter was going to support his daughter almost no matter what. Janice, on the other hand, was a tougher, more practical person. She, She did not look favorably on wrestling, and she was a lot harder on Dixie than her father was. I, I really think that Janice Carter was the biggest problem in, in in terms of really embracing the product and making decisions that needed to be made in order to grow the product. That was really more about Janice than it was Bob. And I, from my perspective, God, this is going to sound horrible. I didn't really care. You know, I, I mean, if, again, I was such a part-timer, my contract was what my contract was. I didn't. I wasn't really relying on TNA for my income. It was nice. Not going to lie about that. It's always nice to have a good income. But I, 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 I was a consultant on a part-time basis and a, occasionally an on-camera personality. That was the extent of my relationship back then in 2010. So I didn't think about it much. I knew I had two two data points really: Kevin K, Scott Fishman. Uh, at Spike TV and whatever I heard second or third hand, whenever I showed up at TV once every two weeks, those are the, those are the two data points I had and everything that I was hearing from Spike television was pretty positive. Yeah. They want, like we said earlier, did they want ratings to be higher? Of course they did, but they were very enthusiastic and supportive of the show from the time I got there. Until the time I left. Now, I don't know what happened after I left. I, I understood things kind of went to hell in a handbasket pretty quick after I left. Not not because I left, but coincidentally after I left, things really fell apart in terms of the relationship between Spike and TNA. But that had nothing to do with the success or failure of the show. That had everything to do the way everything to do with the way TNA was managed. There's no better time to say I love you, and the most hated jeweler in America is at it again. You've heard us say, I hate stevensinger.com and you've heard us rave about his famous roses, but Steven Singer has been selling diamonds and bridal jewelry for four decades. Whether you have someone or something to celebrate, Steven is there for you. Ready to take the next step? Steven has a ready for love engagement ring collection. That is no hassle, no risk, expertly picked engagement rings that are ready to go. Don't worry. Steven won't let you mess this up. He's been selling online for more than two decades. But recently, he's kicked up everything a notch to better serve his friends and guests online. He has real expert jewelers on call to help you find the perfect ring or gift through new virtual video appointments, calls, texts, chats, or emails, all with extended hours. 
On top of that, he offers the best guarantee in the business with a full 100-day, 100% money-back guarantee and free shipping. Interest-free financing is available online, too, and that's just the beginning. Gifts that say I love you every single day, backed with decades of experience in the comfort of your own home, it's easy. Just go to IHateStevenSinger.com. Fast, free, and safe shipping. Steven Singer Jewelers. That's IHateStevenSinger.com. Let's talk about Jason Hervey. His name jumped out like a sore thumb in the observer in my research. It was basically the other question revolves around Bischoff Hogan and Jason Hervey. All three had their public explanations for not being at the last two sets of tapings and missing the pay-per-view, blah, blah, blah. I don't really care about anything else that's written. What was Jason Hervey doing with the company here in 2010? I got to be careful how I answer this. So I want to be respectful. I got Jimmy Harded into TNA and I Jimmy Harded Jason Hervey. There was no, there was no initially when, when I first started talking to Dixie and Hulk and I started talking to Dixie and Jeff, cause Jeff was always a part of those discussions. Jason's name never came up and there was never an intention to bring Jason Hervey in, but Jason and I had been working together and we're having a tremendous amount of success in the unscripted television area in terms of creating and producing and selling shows to networks. And I got, you know, Jason and I were, were tight. We, we just worked well together. We had different skill sets that kind of complemented each other. So when it came time to write a contract and I had Jason's brother, Scott Hervey, who is also Jason and I's attorney. Jason's brother, Scott Hervey, is an intellectual property attorney and a very successful one in Los Angeles with one of the biggest IP firms in the world, for that matter. And and Scott had been doing a lot of our television deals and was very good at it. So I had Scott negotiate, not negotiate, but, well, write my contract for TNA. And when it came time... Because of the nature of my relationship with Jason, and our, our relationship was first as friends and then as business partners, and we just split everything down the middle 50-50. We didn't worry about who came up with an idea or if he worked more time on one show and I worked more time on the other show. We didn't. We just worked our asses off, had fun, and split everything right down the middle. So when it came time for me to write my deal with TNA uh, and, and put it to paper, I had to make a decision. Do I allow this opportunity, TNA, uh, do I allow this opportunity, allow it to become the only thing that I'm doing that I don't share with my partner? Or do I figure out a way to bring my partner into it? And I chose to bring my partner into it. And when I say I Jimmy hearted Jason in, that's what I mean. It's not, and still has a tremendous amount of talent. Now, he doesn't have any wrestling experience. There's a lot of things he doesn't have, but he's a really, really good producer. One of the best I've ever worked with. And and he can direct. He's an actor. He was he started acting at the age of four. 
and and a very successful actor. He was an, an actor, a lead actor in an Emmy award-winning series, you know, The Wonder Year. So he, he's been directed by really great directors. So he's learned how to be a good director. And I knew that, having worked with him in, in Unscripted Reality. I watched him, you know, produce people. I worked with him closely in WCW for a number of years. He was a, a, a third-party contractor for some of the home video stuff that we did that he distributed, by the way, and, and found distribution for he and his company so I, I had enough familiarity with with jason and we were business partners on everything else that we did um and i, I didn't want tna to become the one thing that kind of mm, i don't want to say jeopardize but put any tension at all between jason and i's working relationship so i i brought him in and made him a part of my deal and it worked very effectively what did he do he produced talent. He produced a lot of backstage segments. Do you remember remember the series that we did for a while called Reaction? Mm -hmm. Okay. That was my idea. The concept was my idea. But Jason produced it and directed it all. It was some of the hottest shit that TNA ever did. That, that reaction show, by the way, cost us about $5,000 an episode. I think the budget was 10 and we always came in and under. And it delivered about 80% or, or 75 or 80% of the audience that a two hour primetime show did for a, for a fraction of a fraction of a fraction of the cost of producing that show. But Jason, Jason produced it and directed it. So he, he, he was great at that kind of thing. And he did, he produced a lot of backstage things. He didn't come up with ideas. He didn't come up with angles. That wasn't his role or his interest or his skill, his, you know, his strength, but his strength was taking an idea and say, Jason, here's these two pieces of talent. We've got to get some compelling interviews or promos out of them or a backstage scene or whatever it may be. This is that scene. This is what we hope to achieve. This is where we're at in the arc. Go do it. And he would come back with some great stuff. He was one of the best producers, directors that, that TNA has ever had, in my opinion, other than me, of course. We mentioned earlier that um, <laughs> you were supposed to laugh at that. Right? Well, Come listen, on. it might have been good. I don't know who I was there. <laughs> I don't want to make. I don't want to make it sound like I'm taking myself too seriously. Chat me up about you know the the line here that Dixie wouldn't allow anyone the power to hire or fire. I mean, if you're handcuffing the quote unquote wrestling people, I mean, did you ever hear that that Dixie wouldn't allow anybody else that that leverage? Um, I, I never heard that specifically, but it was pretty clear to me right off the bat that Dixie was calling the shots in that regard. Um, and I can understand why it didn't strike me as odd. I certainly didn't want the power to hire or fire. I mean, I, I ran in the other direction. If that would have been suggested in my contract, I might would have had Scott Hervey, my attorney, strike it out. Um, I, I don't think you have to have control and the ability to hire and fire talent in order to be a good writer or a good producer. You're going to write your best stuff for people that you're most excited about. That's just human nature. 
And if there's somebody that you're not excited about, even though you're writing for them, it's probably not going to be that exciting. It's probably not going to be that high of quality. It's probably not going to work out in the long run. And, you know, people that fall into that category kind of take care of themselves or their fate does. Or, you know, you, you, somebody comes to you, a Dixie Carter may come to you and say, look, I know you don't really see this character. I know you don't really believe in this character, but it doesn't matter. We really need some good stuff for this character. And then you yeah, you'll work hard doing the best you can. But I, I never got too hung up on hiring or firing. I never enjoyed the process. I enjoyed hiring people. I hated firing people. Hated it. Still do to this day. I don't ever want to be in a position of having to fire anybody. It's just a it's a lot of responsibility. But I I, I didn't really think about it too much either. And I don't I don't recall anybody ever complaining about the fact that they didn't have the power to hire and fire people. And I, I would hear – I know Russo, for example, just didn't want anything to do with Samoa Joe. He just – and I'm not even going to say – I'm not even going to – I'm not even going to reiterate some of the things that he said about Joe. It's just – but that was Russo's take. Doesn't mean that Joe wasn't a talented guy, obviously. Um, but that was one guy in particular that I remember Russo would just not stop bitching about. But he couldn't do anything about it because Dixie wanted him and Dixie believed in him. So he stuck around and he did good work. And eventually we found some good things for Joe. Let's, uh, let's talk about something else that Meltzer writes here, and then we'll move on to some other news and notes. We'll get off of you and Hogan, but he's, he's got a lot to say here. While a lot of wrestlers like Hogan as a positive backstage influence are enamored with him, having grown up with him as king of the business, People noted how much more pleasant things were at the last TVs without Bischoff, who many knock as not having contributed one thing of value in six months. His big claim to fame, the new way of shooting backstage interviews with the idea that they come across as quote unquote more real has made absolutely no difference and has been more bad than good in most cases. His changing the format to longer segments and longer commercial breaks hasn't made a difference in ratings. But I, whoa, 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 I can separate there. I gotta separate there because I'll, I'll go off on a tangent and I'll forget this. Eric Bischoff changed the format to include longer commercial breaks. Did I hear that correctly? I think the idea is fewer breaks, but longer ones. It doesn't matter. It doesn't fucking matter. I had zero to do with that. I couldn't have, I couldn't have affected the length duration frequency of a commercial break if my life would have depended upon it that is the most absurd there again every once in a while there's these because there's so much sewage you know that that comes out of the the, the sewage pipe called the wrestling observer there's so much of it that it's oftentimes difficult to kind of sort through it and pick out one piece of garbage that kind of exemplifies or typifies just how much sewage is coming out of that sewage pipe. But here is one, and this is a perfect example of just how ignorant in the truest sense of the word, ignorant Dave Meltzer is the commercial format, the commercial breaks, the length thereof, the frequency thereof. Guess who's in charge of that? The network. That's, That's a network. And there's no way a network is going to pick up the phone or answer a call from a producer and have a conversation about the length of the commercial breaks or the frequency thereof. 
anybody who suggests that, including Dave Meltzer in this context, is a complete fucking idiot. Complete idiot. And if if there's anything, anything at all, I know people listening to this, half of them will go, fuck, I wish he wouldn't talk about Dave Meltzer anymore. I get so pissed off when he buries Dave Meltzer. Blah, 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 blah. And the other half are cheering me on as I beat him to death and bludgeon him with facts and information and elucidate to the world just what a fucking putz this guy really is. This is this is a perfect one. This is right up there with Mabel was going to be the third man. Eric Bischoff in his change of the format and the fact that he's changed the commercial breaks and the duration thereof is the dumbest damn thing amongst a plethora of dumb damn things that I've heard Dave Meltzer write and say, but this one is, this one is classic, just classic. What a fucking moron. Alrighty. Let's move along here. Uh, oh, God, I was doing so well, Connor. I honestly, Connor, I got up this morning. Well, first of all, over at adfreeshows.com, I, I, you know, we have a promotion and some of the people that signed up and are, are, are new. I, I just like you did. You know, I, I made about 35 calls yesterday, right? And I had such a great time. I mean, I had some really, really good conversations with people. I mean, I talked to one guy, and I'm sorry, I don't remember his name right now. I made a note on my call sheet, but uh, one guy, he was with his family, and their, his mom and dad's house had just burned down. Oh, my God. Like, like literally, like hours prior to me calling him. And they were in the state of just devastation and confusion. And that call lightened his day. And we had a great conversation and I, I just, I felt so bad. I told him I was going to pray for his mom and dad. And I could, you know, understand. We talked about how, you know, personal things and photo albums and things all got, you know, you can replace a house, you can replace furniture, but there's certain things you can't replace. And we talked about that. And when I got done, I was, I felt so bad for him and his family, but at the same time, I felt so good because, you know, you, over at adfreeshows.com, you end up developing relate. I have more friends now than I had Three months ago, before we started doing adfreeshows.com, you know, Lauren Yaffe and, and, and many others, you know, that we've become friends with because we get to know them. And I felt so good about it. And then this morning, I get up extra early and I said, you know what? I keep talking about this Rectech grill. I keep threatening, to, you know, to smoke something on the smoker and do a little, you know, video clips of it and kind of show people what I'm doing. So I got up early this morning. I got my smoker fired up. I put the brisket to bed last night, meaning I put the rub on it, got it in the refrigerator. So I spent eight hours in a refrigerator and it's rub. Then I got up early this morning. I got the smoker going. As I sit and do this podcast with you right now, all the windows are open up in my office, right? I got windows on three sides of this room. All the windows are open and my grill is right down below and I can smell the hickory smoke emanating from this brisket it's cooking and i can't wait to put it on tv and i was in such a good mood this morning until this dave Meltzer bullshit 2020 has been the year of things happening that are completely out of your control but there is one thing you can control and that's shaving your bush our sponsors at manscaped are here to remind you to do so and here's the thing we've all known somebody who didn't take this seriously and Maybe they uh, sort of slapped at it as a last minute because they knew, hey, it might be getting some attention. And it wound up backfiring, and it looked like a damn horror scene in the bathroom. Well, the Manscaped Lawnmower 3.0 is a premium electric trimmer that's designed to boost your confidence through your body image. 
their ceramic blade and their skin safe technology. They're both designed to reduce nicks or tugs on your fellas down low. The lawnmower 3.0 is also waterproof and comes with an LED light. You can manscape in the shower, in the dark, or in a dark shower, whatever floats your boat. They've also just released their new Shears 2.0 nail kit, which is the perfect add-on to their lawnmower 3.0 trimmer. By the way, Shears 2.0 is actually a luxury four-piece nail kit featuring tempered stainless steel tools, and it includes tips, tweezers, rounded point scissors, fingernail clippers, and a medium grit nail file. The Shears 2.0 nail kit will allow you to pluck your eyebrows and trim your nails in style. And on their website, you'll also find their crop preserver, which I know Dave Silva's a big fan of. It's anti-chafing ball deodorant and moisturizer. It'll also keep you help that summer swamp ass at bay with natural hydrators and antioxidants. You can even find the crop reviver, which is a testy toner. It's like having cologne that's designed for your balls. And no, we won't judge you if we catch you sniffing yourself. Go to manscaped.com and check out some of these life-changing products right now. In fact, listeners to this show can save 20% off and free shipping with the promo code 83weeks at manscaped.com. That's 20% off with free shipping at manscaped.com when you use the promo code 83weeks. It's time to grab 2020 by the horns by shaving that front trunk. Check it out, manscaped.com. Jesus Christ, my blood pressure is going through the fucking roof. I'm wanting to throw shit. Well, let me fix that because I don't want that to be the case. Uh, so I'll, let me try this. Dave Meltzer writes. He's <laughs> such a dick. <laughs> uh, so they're talking about Desmond Wolf here being in the doghouse. And he says, as you can tell, by ha- as he's been used in the recent weeks, he's in the doghouse, but he's digging his way out. The guy they're down on now is Matt Morgan, who'd been talked about as being part of Flair's group. The Hernandez cage match where the two attempts at the border toss were completely botched was blamed on him since Hernandez is a favorite of management. A lot to unpack here. They want him to be their Mexican superstar, but since they don't really book him as that, it's not happening. Lots of rumor and innuendo around Hernandez. We'll skip that for now. We know Matt Morgan's gone on to be a freaking mayor. Good for him. But Desmond Wolf, uh, Bruce Pritchard told the story once upon a time on our pod that he didn't think that Desmond was really as committed to TNA or wrestling. He was wanting to try other pursuits. What can you tell us about any of these talent, Desmond Wolf, Matt Morgan, or Hernandez in this era, 2010? Yeah, I mean, I can't speak to the specific relationships between management, whoever the management was, and Hernandez, for example. I'll speak for myself. I like the guy on a personal level. Um, he had a lot of, you know, he had a lot of good characteristics. He had a lot of things going for him. He was absolutely horrified, horrified to talk on a mic. You put a microphone in front of him, and his head would spin off his shoulders. He just couldn't do it. I'm not saying he was bad at it. I'm saying it was impossible for him to cut a promo. Impossible. He would he, he would damn near have a seizure. He would be so nervous about it. it. It was that bad. So when you got, you know, we've got somebody, and he wasn't the greatest worker in the ring. He was passable. It was a little bit like Bill Goldberg in a sense. If he would, if he kept his movesets down to a few and, you know, made sure that he was really strong, he didn't put him in a position where he had to sell a lot, things like that. If you worked around his lack of depth as a performer, you could do some great things with him because he had a cool look. 
but man, you, you couldn't do a promo with him. You, you, there were a lot of things you couldn't do with him. So despite the fact, you know, Dixie loved him, you know, Dixie just was enamored with him as a character. Uh, I don't know what the relationship was like. I never really, you know, saw them spending a lot of time together. So I don't know how well she really knew him or how well he knew her, but I knew she really, really want, she wanted that Hispanic star. She really did. Not, not necessarily just because it was Hernandez, but she wanted to have a Hispanic star. Um, and there was nothing wrong with that, but he, Hernandez just wasn't the guy, no matter how hard she tried. And she did. She tried, wanted everybody to try to write different things for him and try to get him over. But it was just not possible because he was so fearful of cutting a promo. And I don't care who you are. Now, Brock Lesnar is, you know, the exception to this rule. But if you can't talk, if you can't get your character over, if you don't have enough depth and range as a performer to be able to handle the pressure of telling your story on a mic or in other scenes, you know, backstage, you're just never going to be that star, no matter how bad anybody wants it for you or you want it for yourself. It's not going to happen unless maybe you're Brock Lesnar. Um, Morgan always liked working with Matt. Great attitude would try so hard he he analyzed things he broke things down he 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 he, he tried to prepare but he's just a little bit like me trying to learn how to play the guitar you know some people just for whatever reason aren't able to get over and matt was one of those guys he couldn't he didn't get over in wwe he couldn't get over in w in in, in tna um, he had the size, didn't necessarily have a great look, you know, his, his look didn't match his size. Meaning if you, if you saw Matt Morgan from the face up, he kind of looked like he could be your accountant or football coach, high school football coach or, or whatever. He didn't have that mean, tough, aggressive look to him, despite the fact he was as big as he was. Um, but he just, he, for whatever reason, he, he just never got over it. Who was the third one? There was somebody else. Uh, your man, Hernan- Desmond Wolf. Desmond Wolf. I, I, I always got along with Desmond um, socially. You know, we had a number of good discussions about wrestling, about psychology, about potential stories, things like that. I never, I, you know, I, I didn't work with Desmond a lot, um, but the, the, the occasions that I did have to work with him or the conversations that I did have, have with him, I was always impressed with him. I never felt like he wasn't committed. Doesn't mean he wasn't. I just never got to know him all that well. I, it just was not my impression. Desmond had other issues. He had health issues. I'm not going to disclose them here. It's up to him, not me. But he had some serious health issues that made it really difficult to put him in the kind of positions that he needed to be in to get over. Um, he, he we'll let it go with that. He had hepatitis. He did a whole book on it or not a book, but a documentary okay. on it. So it's, right. it's not a, I appreciate your approach, but he's already you know told the okay. whole story. And well, then, yeah. well, that makes it a lot easier for me then. I don't have to be vague and ambiguous, but yeah, that the fact that he had hepatitis and there was a period there where he thought he might, and he wasn't sure if he did. And uh, there was a lot of confusion surrounding his, his challenge at that time. So th- that was probably the biggest reason that he never got the push that he was hoping to get, um, and, and TNA and it had nothing to do with his attitude or my feelings about him or probably even Bruce's at that time. Um, 
it had everything to do with the fact that he just couldn't get in a ring and wrestle. Go out of your way to look up a documentary if you're if you're a hardcore fan, The Last of McGinnis. I think it came out in like 2013, but it's his story about how he's struggling with winding down his wrestling career because he can't really progress with this blood disease. So it's called The Last of McGinnis. We know these days he, uh, or more recently rather, uh, he had a great time doing some commentary for WWE. Let's get back on topic though in 2010. On TV, we would see Abyss come out with his board of nails and some raw meat. And uh, he's, of course, gotten a big promo for Rob Van Dam saying he's got some plans that are beyond extreme. And he's announcing that he's named his board Janice, <laughs> noting that she was sexy, sophisticated, and sharp. And, of course, for those of you keeping score at home, Janice is Dixie Carter's mother's name. What the fuck? Yeah, I never got that. I never, you know, and I, Abyss is one of the nicest human beings you'll ever meet. He, he's just, it's rare that I describe another guy as sweet. It just doesn't roll off my tongue normally. But in this case, Abyss is one of the sweetest people you'd ever have the opportunity to meet. He just was, and he, God, he would do anything. He, he, he would do anything. But when he, I, I hated his character. I just did, you know, it broke my heart to say it to him because he would ask me, you know, he would want to have an honest conversation and he would want to know what I really thought about things. Right. And I had to tell him, you know, this is like, yeah, this is a Kmart blue light special, you know, tr- trying to be a little bit of Mick Foley and trying to be a little bit of the undertaker and trying to, you know, it's, it's just a, the character. And, and that's why I changed him to Chris Parks. That was my idea. Turn him into the, the, his alter ego and a lawyer. And he pulled it off so amazingly well. He was such a great performer, but that gimmick held him back for whatever reason. He loved that gimmick and he loved coming out there with that board filled with nails and it's just to me it was garbage wrestling and it's okay to do that once in a while but if that's your character and you're going to stick with it you're really limiting yourself and your and your range and your abilities and i was really happy to see him shed that character and become chris park but uh whatever i forgot the question well we were just (laughs) talking about janice and how weird that was oh yeah i mean it was weird i uh, And I guess maybe Janice got a kick out of it. Maybe it's a way for Dixie to acknowledge how tough her mother was and how she was really the, the beast that people were afraid of. I don't know what the motivation was, but you know, those, and I, the way I looked at it was, okay, those are on the inside that know what it means. Great. Chuckle, chuckle. Ha ha ha. That's kind of funny to the people outside of the industry who have no idea who Janice Carter is. It didn't hurt anything. It was just a board named Janice. So no harm, no foul, but it was just a cute little nod towards Dixie's mother. Modern version of Virgil and Vincent, right? I guess. Yeah. Yeah. Just me inside. If you know, you know, and if not, no big deal. Right. Something that is a big deal. Jeff Hardy picks up a win over uh, Jay Lethal in under four and a half minutes. Twist of fate and Swanton. That's it. And this is fresh off of Jay Lethal picking up the biggest victory of his life, beating Ric Flair. In hindsight, should we have beat Lethal this easily? It feels like 
this should have been a longer match with a lot of near falls. I mean, I'm fine with the bigger star Jeff Hardy winning, but fresh off of beating Rick on pay-per-view feels like we could have done more with him here. Yeah, I agree. I, I don't know what went into that decision or what the reasoning for it was or the rationale was, whatever. Have no idea. But surely looking back at it, I think I think Jay Lethal was probably one of the biggest mistakes TNA made, letting him go, not taking advantage of him. And there were, you know, there was a lot of mistakes. And I made many of them too. I'm not pointing fingers, okay? I'll make that really clear. But letting Jay Lethal go and not take worse yet, not taking advantage of him and getting him over to the ability that he was capable of getting over while he was in TNA has to be one of the bigger mistakes they made. Let's also talk about how we're trying to sort of serve two masters as we build towards this pay-per-view. Uh, Jerry Lynn is confirming on his website that he's going to be taking on Rob Van Dam in the main event at the pay-per-view. The only other match that's been made obvious from TV is Raven versus Tommy Dreamer, which is being billed as their last match ever with Mick Foley as a referee. And there's also Sabu and Sandman appearing in the commercial we know that also on that list will be Two Cold Scorpio, Johnny Swinger, Tracy Smothers, Little Guido, Bill Alfonso, and C.W. Anderson. But at the same time, we're taping TV where we're also advancing TNA storylines like RVD and Abyss in a ladder match. We've also got the Machine Guns versus Beer Money in a best of five for the tag titles. We've got Kurt Angle and AJ Styles battling it out to move up the rankings for a title shot. How do we serve two masters of, hey, we got this nostalgia pay-per-view, but, oh, yeah, that's not our main thing. We also do this. This split focus like this feels like it would be challenging to put together TV, but at the same time, uh, I don't know, probably weird for the viewer too. Let's say you. No, I mean, you basically you're putting your storylines on hold, you, and, and you're going to restart after this nostalgia pay-per-view is over. You, you can't really serve two masters. You certainly can't do it well. Um, but to me, this was just like hit the pause. Let's do something fun for this weekend or this month. And then next week we'll get back to TV again. That's really how I looked at this pay-per-view. Well, there's no doubt about it. That's what they're aiming for. Uh, on the June 20, I'm sorry, July 22nd impact. The show is built all around Dixie Carter's big announcement. She's all over the show. And there's a line in here about ECW in the nineties is what Hogan was in the eighties. Oh God. And, and, and Meltzer would say that is such a slap in Hogan's face, but they're selling ECW this month, but my God, what a line. Yeah. I mean, that's the kind of thing that, and I, you know, I understand, look, give Dixie credit. She was trying her best to get this pay-per-view over. However, her best was inadequate and it was stupid. It, it, it to, to, to try to compare ECW and its impact on professional wrestling to Hulk Hogan in the eighties, Jesus woman, what? I, I, I don't even know how that thought could have formed in her head to make it to her mouth, but it did. <laughs> and, 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 the, and, and as a result of that, that's an, another thing, you know, that's another example of, and, and again, I, it sounds like I'm picking on Dixie and I don't mean to, but when you're prone to, hyperbole when you're prone to over promise and and as a result consistently under deliver when your modus operandi is to um 
raise expectations to a level that no one could probably realistically achieve and then constantly disappoint your audience as a result, this is what happens. This is the kind of thing that comes out of your mouth. And, you know, for Dixie to make a statement like that, whether she knew it or knows it or realizes it even now, is you've undermined the credibility of the event you're trying to promote by making such an outrageous statement that anybody with a thought in their head would understand doesn't make a lick of sense. You know, and it's not, it's unnecessary. It's just a really bad comparison to make. Well, that's not even the worst thing on the show. Um, there's something scripted here where Tommy Dreamer's talking about how people had asked him for years to come to TNA, but he had a family to think of. And Meltzer would say there's nothing, nothing worse that TNA does than make themselves out to be the minor leagues on their own show. Because when you have a talent say... I've been thinking about coming here, but I had a family to think of. It says either A, Dreamer doesn't think he's uh, going to be able to support his family on a TNA salary. I mean, I don't know. Just What do you think of this? Like, I've been talking to you for years to come I, here, but I had a family to think of. What? I, I, I have no idea. I have no idea what anybody was thinking when they, A, wrote it, or B, if it wasn't written, if they just let Tommy improv, somebody should have listened to that and go, oh, Tommy, that's maybe not what we want to say. Let's do another take. But for whatever reason, um, it's there. You know, I, I, I can't explain it at all. I, I'm just, I was kind of as aghast as, <laughs> as you are. I've always thought it was so cool when I would go to one of my friend's houses or Maybe uh, one of my friend's grandparents' houses, if they had one of those old fancy paintings of their family over the fireplace, I just thought that was so classy. So when I heard that at PaintYourLife.com, you could have an original painting by a world-class artist done by hand, all from a photo, I thought, man, what a great idea. It must be so expensive. But the reality is, that's just not true. I'm proud to say I finally got one of those hanging in my dining room. And you can get a professional hand-painted portrait created from any photo at a truly affordable price and if you really want to give a truly meaningful gift you've just got to try paintyourlife.com you'll choose from a team of world-class artists and create with them and work with them until every detail is perfect user-friendly platforms that help you make a custom-made hand-painted portrait in less than five minutes that's too good to be true but that's what you're going to find at paintyourlife.com it's quick and easy in fact, you can get a hand-painted portrait in just about three weeks. And here's how it works. You send any picture, maybe one of your kids or yourself or your family or a special place or a special pet. You can even combine photos into one painting. This makes an incredible birthday gift, an unbeatable anniversary gift, and a truly memorable wedding gift. It's the perfect gift for pretty much any occasion. And why is that? Well, because it's meaningful, it's personal, and it will be cherished forever. Eventually, everybody's going to forget who gave them that tie or that blender or that gift card. But nobody's going to forget a hand-drawn painting from a world-class artist. Are you kidding? They're going to keep that forever. And this has been my experience when I gave this to my mom and dad, when I gave this to my in-laws, when I, when I have one in my own dining room. I mean, people will be breezing past and they'll see it and they'll stop and look. Is that a photo? Oh my gosh, this is a painting. They ask, where'd you get it? And I can't wait to tell them at paintyourlife.com. 
And by the way, I should mention on paintyourlife.com, there's no risk. If you don't love the final painting, your money's refunded, guaranteed. And right now is a limited time offer. You can get 20% off your painting. That's right, 20% off and free shipping. To get this special offer, just text the word ERIC to 64000. That's E-R-I-C to 64000. Text ERIC to 64000. Paint your life. Celebrate the moments that matter most. Let's, um, let's talk about another segment on TV. Uh, I can't believe this is real. Uh, this is right from the observer. Carter said she wasn't cutting a promo and this was real. The best line was saying that as important as Hogan was to the eighties, these guys were to the nineties. Well, the one thing, at least Bischoff, who no matter what you may think of him today was the architect of the nineties wrestling boom. And he's always got to be throwing up when he's in a company and he's acting like these guys were the Hogan of the nineties. Well, I guess it's karma for when Bischoff was in the room with Flair Hall and Nash and said, the only guys who ever drew money were Hogan Piper and Savage. It is weird. And I understand what she's trying to do to your point that she's trying to sell it, but God, that just comes off weird, especially when she starts with, I'm not cutting a promo. This is real. <laughs> she loved being on camera. I mean, is that really the gist of this whole thing? You know, when all the criticisms, when we boil it down that, you know, Dixie just wanted to do what Dixie wanted to do. And that wasn't always best for business, but because she's writing checks, so it is what it is. I mean, that was all, uh, obviously that was true. I mean, Dixie was writing the checks. Well, actually Janice was writing the checks, but this, <laughs> it, it looked like Dixie was, um, and she could do what she wanted to do, but I, I, I think Dixie was driven more by wanting to be the first woman Vince McMahon. She wanted to be a star. She wanted to be the face of that company. She wanted the recognition of being, you know, that powerful woman who's running a wrestling company and 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 doing so successfully and building her own little empire. And she, she and, and I'm not even saying that was wrong for her to do. You know, Dixie was an attractive woman. She was intelligent. She was articulate. She just didn't know anything about the wrestling business or didn't care to learn. Um, and when she got the opportunity to get up there and play the part of that powerful woman wrestling executive that owns a wrestling company, she would jump at that opportunity and, and not manage it well. One of the things I've wanted to ask about, and I'm glad we're, we're finally going to talk about it here is how you navigate the trademark situation because you can't call this ECW the WWE owns that so you guys come up with well there's a segment on the show where dreamer rhino raven stevie devon mick everybody's out and dreamer's going to announce there's a new name that there were legal issues with certain letters of the alphabet so now we're going to call it ev2 2.0 rather ev2.0 and it's often been rumored that this is your idea. I mean, we need something to call it. You don't want the fans chanting ECW and to get yourself in trouble. And we've got to have something to call it. EV 2.0. Is this a Bischoff ism? I, it may have been, I don't remember it. I kind of doubt it just because I wasn't involved in this project creatively. I didn't have any fingerprints on it whatsoever. Um, 
but I may have suggested it if it was a problem and I was involved in a discussion about how to deal with the issue. So it could have happened. I just don't remember it. All right, let's keep it moving here. Let's talk about uh, the change from the um, global championship. You had a championship belt here, and now we're going to start calling it the television title. Is that Was that a little silly to have a world title and a global championship belt? Seems a little weird. <laughs> Yeah, I want to make it clear because, and I, you know, I'm, I'm not being critical here, Conrad, but when you say you guys or you had the global chat, I didn't have shit. This was, <laughs> I, 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 I had nothing to do with any of that. All right. But I will tell you from my perspective, it was stupid. It was asinine. I understand the logic and I understand the why of it which was, by the way, to have a title that could be defended or it could change hands on a fairly regular basis in the UK for UK television and UK fans because Dixie was, and justifiably so, again, this is not a knock, there was a lot of money to be made in the UK and uh, TNA was doing very well in the UK and she wanted to have a belt that could change hands for the UK fans necessarily and not affect the world heavyweight title. So I understand the why of it, but it doesn't take away the confusion that ensues as a result of it. Yeah. It was silly. Yeah. It is a little silly. I'm glad you changed it. It was an interesting belt too. You guys spent a lot of time. Not on the you belt. guys, I didn't do it. I didn't do it. Not you guys. TNA pronouns, pal pronouns. Well, you're taking a check from the motherfuckers. I just assume that if you're taking a check, you're with them. That's my bad. Well, I was with them, but not responsible as such for some of these things. I mean, the lady in catering was also taking a check from them, but she didn't have any fucking thing to do with the global belt. Just cause you're taking a check. Doesn't mean you have anything to do with everything else that's going on. Just trying to be clear differentiate and yes distance myself from some silly shit look some of the silly shit that went on there i can't distance myself from and i'll eat it right here on this show for the pleasure and joy of everybody listening i will bury myself when i deserve it i just don't want to get splattered with the shit that other people created okay copy that so they're picking up where they left off this old ecw angle with tommy dreamer and raven uh, pretty good stuff here, but on the same episode, uh, we've also got Kevin Nash coming out complaining. He's not booked on the card. Hogan's telling him he has to realize times have changed and Jeff Jarrett had stepped back and our time is over. The crowd's booing Hogan for saying that. And then he's saying there's, you know, no more minimum effort for maximum money. All the smoke and mirror days are over. And Hogan's basically saying Nash's whole career was based on politics. And the crowd, I don't think, really cares about any of this. And then Nash lays you out. Hogan starts firing away at Nash, which Meltzer said looked real bad. This feels like, uh, I don't know, a show with a, a little bit of an identity crisis. We even have Sting come out with orange face paint, which Mike Tanay is going to say, oh, those are the Wolfpack colors. Mm. And then there's a, a bat shot to the gut and the head. With Sting and Jarrett, we're all over the place in our build for this show. And I don't know, it's just, it's, it's very difficult to follow. I mean, I know you're saying you got to put your storylines on hold, but we're doing this. And at the same time saying, don't forget to order the pay-per-view that has nothing to do with what you're seeing right now. 
<laughs> I know it's nuts, right? It's nuts. Now, I didn't watch the episode that led into this pay-per-view. I only watched the pay-per-view in order to prep for the show. So what you're describing to me, I'm, I, I, I can't even begin to put into any kind of context. And as you read it to me, it really, it, it's, it's vertigo inducing. It's so bad, but yeah, having, having this pay-per-view just jump up almost out of nowhere in terms of backstory and put everything else on hold and try to make sense of it was obviously a challenge. Without question. Well, let's get into the pay-per-view. Uh, I guess we should mention on our way here, there was a one tag match. It was RVD and dreamer on one side, abyss and Raven on the other, they go less than four minutes. But when we get to the actual pay-per-view, the show opens with Taz doing a promo saying that the people who thought ECW was all about violence, don't get it and never will get it says we revolutionized this freaking business we were the true renegades of this industry and that's a shoot and i have a message for anyone who wants to piss on what we did you don't get it you'll never get it and you may as well just kiss my ass okay let's stop right there hey taz if you're listening i don't care that i don't get it i don't give two shits that i don't get it or i ever will i think you're so full of yourself because that was such a bright spot in that little career of yours and you got to be the ecw champion and i understand just like those high school football kids in that little town in nebraska who are still reliving that moment i get it on a human to human level but in a big scheme of things you're drinking your own kool-aid and i don't care that in fact i'm proud that i don't get it I'll, I'll wear a t-shirt that says, I don't get it, Taz. It's okay. But you live in that world. You, you keep living in that world, Taz. You keep experiencing that moment and reliving it over and over and over again. Cause I know how much it meant to you. I, on the other hand, don't give two shits there. How's that? Taz is going to love that. He was, prob <laughs> he was probably doing that in character though, as something that was scripted for him. Like, oh, I don't think so, brother. I don't know about that. Okay. Well, let's, you watch this show. He said, the... he said it's a shoot. He said it. Oh, Jesus. <laughs> Listen to you. I'm, I'm just funning you, Taz. I'm just funning you. By the way, uh, well, we'll talk about it another time. Uh, I got a, uh, a kick watching this show back. This is not nearly the same show as One Night Stand. The first match is the full-blooded Italians trio of Tracy Smothers and Guido, and, of course, Tony Luke, your boy, taking on Kid Cash, Johnny Swinger, and Simon Diamond. Ten minutes, 43 seconds. Meltzer would say Tracy Smothers, who's 47, wore a singlet and looked old, but Swinger cosmetically looked great. Uh, of course, Guido looked older but was in shape. Luke pretty much looked the same. Meltzer would say Diamond was not in shape to the point that Taz was making fun of him, saying he looked like three diamonds and he should have invested in a singlet. And then the crowd did a where's my pizza chant in the middle of the match. They do the dance contest. It's old school fun stuff. Uh, one star finish, though. Uh, the FBI pick up the win. What would you think? This is hardcore. 
just hardcore. It was hardcore silliness. It was. And it was fine for what it was. I mean, it was supposed to be entertaining. I'm not knocking it. it I'm having fun with it. It was supposed to be a fun. Is there anybody in their right mind that went into this match thinking it was going to be a serious match? If if they did, then they find out rather quickly that it wasn't. I I laughed during it. It made me smile. Um, I, I found the you know it's 16 minutes and nine seconds if you're if you're going to get the Impact app and watch this back Impact Plus I think it's called. Uh, you'll get a kick out of it. I encourage people to watch it for the entertainment value. You know the wrestling was horrible, horrible, uh, horrific. I guess I merged those two words. Um, the action was silly. The dancing was awesome. I think. What happened, I, I think it was right after the match, at 30 minutes and 50 seconds, I think, I was watching the Blue Meanie and some other guy picking each other's noses. That was about the most obscene thing I think I've ever witnessed watching a wrestling pay-per-view. But it, it was what it was, you know. Uh, and by the way, uh, checking in on Tracy Smothers, have you heard about his condition at all? Is there any updates on him? He's not doing well. It's, uh, I mean, he's, he's in a real fight for his life for, uh, cancer and, and I think that friend of the show, Chris hero actually put together a GoFundMe. Uh, so go out of your way to check that out. He set it up back in April, uh, but they have reached their goal, but every little bit helps. So, uh, just pop over to gofundme.com and look up Tracy Smothers. And over the years, his name has been spelled different ways. T R A C Y without the E is the way to look it up. Tracy Smothers. And um, one of the unsung heroes of professional wrestling, a legit good guy. He is a great guy. And I saw Tracy. You know, I worked with Tracy when I first got to WCW in 91. He was there for, for quite a while. And he was a great performer. I mean, he really, really was. In his prime, Tracy was was a great performer. But I saw Tracy about two or three years ago at an independent event somewhere in I mean, look, we've all gotten older, and, and and so did Tracy, but his passion and his pure enjoyment of performing in front of a crowd was still probably just as strong as it was when he was in his 20s. And it was uh, – you always – you know, you, you hate to see your peers getting older and not being able to perform physically the way that they used to. We all go through that. But to see the passion that he had the last time I saw him, and when I say passion, I mean pure enjoyment. He was so grateful to be where he was, and he was truly having a blast doing it. It, it made my heart smile. So, I, Tracy, if you hear this, I'm praying for your brother and wishing you nothing but the best. And I will actually hit that GoFundMe page as soon as I'm done with this podcast. And help a brother out because he's a good man next up we see mike today and taz doing on camera where today said styles wasn't available but if he was he would gladly give up his chair and today was in the ultimate no win situation here according to dave Meltzer. they also mentioned that jerry lynn injured his back training for the match and apparently was hurt so bad he couldn't even fly to the show but that they turned a negative into a positive with sabu taking his place Meltzer would say there were other names that were talked about that maybe would be in better shape for a main event. Even Cash and Two Cold Scorpio was being discussed the night before, but it was obvious that Sabu was the right pick, and ultimately it was left up to Van Dam. Did you know anything about this, that the main event was going to be changing because Jerry couldn't go? No. No, as I said, I wasn't involved in it. 
in, in, in any part of the development of the show or the writing of the show. So that that's just not something that would have crossed my desk. They do a bit of a, where are they now segment on here? I showed Todd Gordon talking about the early days, Gary Wolf, Pitbull number one and blue Meanie also did promos. And we've got AJ styles talking about the Tommy dreamer, Sandman angle. And, um, just some old fun stuff. They do a little backstage comedy segment with Al snow and head, and he's yelling at head for chanting those letters and says that Jerry talking about McDivitt will get mad. There's lots of little fun stuff like that. Uh, Mike Bucci shows up as supernova. As you mentioned earlier, there's blue mini there. Uh, it's fun for what it is. I suppose. No, it was entertaining. Look, if you were, if you were into ECW back in the day, if you were one of the small handful of people that, that followed the show on a regular basis nationwide, um, then yeah, you got a big kick out of this and, and the guys were having fun. You know, I had to take that little shot, but in all seriousness, you know, the, the, where are they now segment I thought was really done. Well, it put the show into context. It reinforced the fact that this is kind of a reunion show. It's not a storyline driven show. And I, I thought they did a great job with it. And the skits that they were doing backstage were, were funny. And you know, when guys are having fun doing whatever they're doing, the quality of the product, you can feel it. You know, it may be silly. It may be produced poorly. There may be some things wrong with it, storyline. But you can pick things apart all you want. But at the end of it all, as long as everybody's having a good time, for the most part, the viewer at home is, you know, they're going to enjoy watching it, especially if it's a two- or three-minute, you know, skit. No doubt about it. And and this, you know, had all the little uh, sort of homages to the past, including – uh, a new Ravens flock. They've got a fake lupus and, um, they even have Sam Shaw, who we now know from NXT, who I think you may have even come up with a Dexter gimmick for in TNA. He's there and picking his nose. And then the fake blue mean, he's going to pick his nose and each other's noses and all the, yeah, that was, know. that was weird as fuck. I didn't, I, I didn't get that one, but whatever. It's all weird <laughs> shit. Next up though, is a pretty good match Two cold Scorpio and CW Anderson. I was a big fan of both of these guys. Unfortunately, they're probably not at the their, their peak showing here in 2010. Maybe they just didn't get enough time. I'm not sure. But it's a short, decent little match. Six minutes, 46 seconds, star and a half. What do you think? I've always been a, a fan of Too Cold Scorpio and felt like he could have done a lot more and certainly felt the same way about CW. I, I, I too, was a fan of Too Cold. I had a chance to work with him for quite a while in WCW and uh, actually went over to North Korea. He was part of the team that went over to North Korea and competed. Uh, I never really knew C.W. Anderson. I don't think we've ever really crossed paths. If we did, it was short and sweet. Um, I thought the match was four for what it was, given that Too Cold was certainly not at the peak of his career at this point. I thought it was a good match. I don't think going any longer would have made it any better. In fact, I think going longer would have probably had the opposite effect and probably would have resulted in a match of much less quality than we saw here. That's what happens when you get older, <laughs> less becomes a lot more real quick. Right. Um, but for what it was at the stages of these guys career, I thought it was, a, it was a decent match. We've got another one here where we see Rob Van Dam and Bill Alfonso backstage. Meltzer's going to say Alfonso looks really old. Of course, they're talking about Rob Van Dam's decision for who he's going to be facing. We know that, we're going to have uh, a main event here with him and Sabu. But next, our next match, though, is Stevie Richards pinning PJ Polacco in six and a half minutes. PJ is uh, 
the former Just Incredible, the former Aldo Montoya. What'd you think of this one? You haven't seen it in a long time. Uh, these two guys compete. Stevie Richards has always been in tremendous shape. And uh, he's a freak. He, I mean, he is a freak. He's probably in better shape now than he was back then. Yeah. He's a freak. He just dry. He actually pisses me off. He's in such good shape. Meanwhile, Meltzer would describe PJ as saying he looked like a guy working a regular job and he probably couldn't have got, could have gotten into better shape with more time. He's wearing a uh, just incredible t-shirt here and fans are chanting that at him. And the finish would even see him say, that's not just the coolest. That's not just the best that my friends is Justin. Instead of finishing with credible, which they couldn't do. Stevie Richard super kicks him, which is tremendous. Uh, and then Sandman comes in and does his whole thing. Everybody knew Sandman was coming. And this always been a big part of any ECW show. And here's the spot for it. It gets a star and a half. what do you think? I always entertaining. You know, I, I've always enjoyed watching Stevie Richards work. He's, he's a, a, a great performer, um, in many respects in the ring. Uh, so I, I enjoyed it. And again, I, I kind of two minutes into the show, I realized what we're going to watch here is not any of this talent performing to the level that they did 10 or 15 years earlier. That's just common sense. You got to know that going in. And because there were no stories, there was just, these were just spectacles. This was an exhibition designed to tickle the nostalgia fancy of, of a certain amount of viewers. And for that, it was what it was. And I, I enjoyed it. I, I, I didn't dissect the match too much. My expectations were pretty low and, and because my expectations were low, I think they probably exceeded it. You know, Justin and, and Stevie in this match. So it was fine for what it was. I mean, that's really, that's all I can say about most of these matches with it, maybe the exception of one or two, they just are what they were and they were fun for the moment. Well, the next one is more of that. It's a three-way with Rhino, Al Snow and brother Runt, the former Spike Dudley. They go five minutes, 49 seconds. Rhino picks up the win two stars. Uh, I don't know. Sort of is what it is. Who cares? Move on. Anything you want to contribute here? No, I mean, that one, I, I enjoyed this one probably the most. And again, this is a, this is a, it's a personal thing, but you know, I, I love Al Snow. He's a, just a super guy really enjoyed the opportunity to work with Al for a few years. I uh, worked with him in, 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 I worked at WWE while Al was in WWE when I was there as a talent, certainly got to work with Al for a couple of years in TNA and really, really Al snow, Al snow is probably in some respects, one of the smartest people I've ever talked to in the wrestling business. Really? He, he really is. He really does understand psychology. He really, really gets it. And I know he's, you know, he's got his OVW promotion and he's, I'm sure he's teaching and, and, and all of that. But if there was anybody that if, if, if someone in my family or a close friend said, Hey, you know, I want to break into the wrestling business. What school should I go to? I would probably send them to Dustin Reynolds because I know he's opening up a school or Al Snow would be the two people that I would recommend because I, I have respect for both of them in terms of their knowledge of psychology and, and their perspective on the industry. But I, I enjoyed working with Al a lot. Rhino, he's just such a cool cat. 
You know, I mean, I, would, I remember one time I was traveling. I think we were going to Australia or we were going to Japan, one or the other, for WWE. And we had like a, a, a six-hour layover in Honolulu for whatever reason. I don't know. So they got us hotel rooms and we all doubled up. We weren't going to be there overnight. It was just, okay, let's get to a hotel room, take a shower, grab a bite to eat, relax for a couple hours and get back to the airport type of thing. And my roommate was was Rhino. And I never hung out with Rhino. I never really got to know him. We had very few conversations up until that point, but just randomly I ended up splitting a room with Rhino. And I talked to him for about four hours straight. Just a super guy. He's from Detroit, so I, which I didn't know at the time or I hadn't paid attention to. And uh, just had a lot of things in common. He's just a great guy. And I, I've always liked Spike Dudley. Just you know, I haven't spent a lot of time with him, but the time that I have spent around with him, uh, hanging around with him, he, he's just a cool cat. So I enjoyed watching these three for that reason and probably enjoyed the match more than I possibly should have as a result of my personal feelings about the three of them. Next up, we've got Team 3D taking on Axel Rotten and Cajones, which is the former Balls Mahoney, 11 minutes, 55 seconds. The fans are chanting Balls, and Mahoney <laughs> comes out. And, uh, they're the most hardcore and most extreme tag team in wrestling, but yet we don't have a match booked and they challenge anyone in the back that brings out Joel Gertner with the Dudleys who are rocking the old tie dye with the glasses and tape, just tremendous stuff. And then it's the, the hardcore cluster that you may have imagined. They're even going to do a flaming table spot. The Dudleys pick up the win, or I'm sorry, team 3d gets star and a half. This is old school ECW pretty hardcore. What'd you think? Definitely not my cup of tea. If, if if this was being served at the wrestling buffet that I happened to stumble into on any particular day, I would have skipped that item on the buffet completely. That being said, acknowledging that there are a lot of people that do love hardcore matches and as a nostalgia act, I thought they, what else could they have done other than a flaming table? I mean, they brought out every gimmick you can possibly bring out from underneath the ring that makes any amount of sense. Now, the plastic lightsaber thing, I don't know. Kind of boggled my mind. I got a little dizzy inside my head watching it, trying to figure out why the fuck anybody thought that was going to be a good idea. But as it turned out, it was a gag. It was a, it was silliness for the sake of silliness. They were having fun, and I guess it worked. For those people that really love this kind of thing, and I know they're out there. I know they are, just because I don't like it. Doesn't mean a lot of other people do don't like it either. In fact, I know a lot of people do like it. For me, I was kind of I was glad that it made me laugh. Let's put it that way. After the match, Bubba says, We've just proven that we're the best tag team in the world. That brings the gangsters out where they come out and destroy everybody while the music's playing. And it's probably not the same because they can't play the original music, which obviously ECW was doing without a license. They break a crutch on Bubba. Then you use a kitchen sink. And finally, New Jack hits Gertner with a hard guitar shot. And Gertner's selling it like he's dead. The crowd's chanting, thank you. Everybody's hugging. This is, uh, I don't know. I mean, I guess it's a feel-good moment. I mean, at the one hand, they're destroying everybody with weapons. And then just a couple moments later, everybody's hugs and kisses all around. But for on a nostalgia night, maybe that gets a pass. What say you? Yeah, I guess. Right. I mean, I don't think there was any attempt here to make anybody take this too seriously. Again, there was no grudges. There were no feuds. There were, you know, implied or inferred grudges and feuds based on, you know, past backstory and things like that. But for the most part, this was just, it was what it was. It was just an exhibition. It was a, 
an, uh, it was a moment in time where everybody could go back and see where their favorite stars from that era were and what they were doing and seeing them back in action again. And I don't think anybody, including the talent, took it too seriously other than wanting to perform. Now, Tommy Dreamer is an exception. I'm sure Tommy took it very seriously. And Taz. Taz took it very seriously. But I think everybody else was pretty much just having fun with it. Next up, 16 minutes, 59 seconds. Raven gets a win over Tommy Dreamer. Mick Foley is the referee. And uh, Raven's even going over to Tommy Dreamer's wife, the, femur, the former Beulah McGillicuddy, but maybe they're nervous about calling her that here. They refer to her as Trissa uh, in the stands. And uh, he's got the, the two kids there, the whole deal. So they're sort of blurring the lines of, of reality and storyline. And if you've been following this storyline from ECW, this is their oldest rivalry. The match maybe goes a little too long. It's a star and a quarter. Meltzer says they were into it in other spots. Basically, they popped for spots, but the match wasn't good. And at times, it felt like we were watching Bobo Brazil versus The Sheik when they were both 60, and they'd still do their bloodbath matches in Michigan. What would you think? Uh, this one, you know, the rest of the matches, honestly, I, I kind of enjoyed watching because, I, again, it, I, I took them at face value. It was a fun event. It was meant to be fun. This match, because they took it so seriously and because of the amount of juice involved, it just, I don't know, it just didn't fit. It didn't seem appropriate to me. I understand reliving, you know, past rivalries and trying to make something feel real, even though everything on, on the else on the show was really kind of based in humor and kind of a tongue-in-cheek presentation. And now, we've, now we're expecting the audience to completely shift gears and take it seriously. It just, there was no way I could connect to it. It just was what it was. And I, again, I, all the people dug it. I got it. The audience dug it. So just because I didn't like it doesn't mean shit. Uh, a lot of people did, and I recognize that. But you asked me personally, I was just like, oh, I, was, I was excited for it to be over with. Sabu's going to show up for our main event with his, his head shaved. And Meltzer would even say he looks a lot like Ivan Koloff. The fans are into it right away. As soon as the match starts with him and Rob Van Dam, fans are chanting, this is classic. They pull out all their great stuff, 17 minutes, 12 seconds. You know the idea, though. Rob Van Dam's going over. Uh, Meltzer would say the spots were good, but they were out there too long, and the, the match started dragging. The finish saw Sabu go for the Arabian face buster off the top rope onto RVD on a table. RVD moved, and Sabu went through the table. And then he hit the five-star frog splash for the pin. Not a great match, but the best thing on the show, and the crowd helped it. Uh, both worked really hard. Three stars. And then after the match, everyone comes to the ring for a beer bash while the crowd is chanting, thank you. And Meltzer would say, this was really cool. Gertner was even out, not selling anything from the match. The crowd started chanting, fuck you, Vince, like McMahon, not Russo, and Carter smiled. And then the fans started chanting Dixie and TNA as the show ends. And Bubba picks Dixie up from ringside and brings her to the ring. What'd you think? It was a great moment. You know, it, it, you've heard me say this before. One of the things I, I enjoy about WrestleMania weekend the most is the Hall of Fame. And because those moments when talent gets up there and back when there were big crowds <laughs> and you've got a bunch of people attending the Hall of Fame ceremony and everybody, you know, their friends, their family, their peers, um, some of them people that you've worked with for decades in some cases. And, and the talent that's up there 
that's a very real, genuine moment for them. And because it's real and because it's genuine, it's communicated to the audience. And you can feel it. You can see it. I, I've, I've, I've been in the audience a couple of times at the WrestleMania Hall of Fame. And I've actually you know, gotten tears in my eyes for people that I never even really had a relationship with because I know how – I know how much that moment means to them. And I think this scene at the end of this pay-per-view is very similar in that respect. I'm sure that every one of those people in that ring were just filled with, not to sound corny, but were filled with the joy of that moment. And it was real and it communicated. I felt it even this morning as I was watching this show, even though I'm not a fan of this style of presentation, it doesn't change the fact that the emotion that was in that ring in that final scene was so real that even someone like me, who is kind of ambivalent about the pay-per-view was touched by it in a way. It's like, wow, that, that I kind of wish I would have been in that ring. Had I been a part of that, that, that group of people back in, you know, in the ECW days, I wish I could have experienced that with them. It was that much fun to watch. Well, and this was fun for us to do. We appreciate you guys coming along for a look back. At an interesting time in professional wrestling, yet another ECW reunion show. Uh, this one was for TNA. Next week, though, we'll be back at you talking my favorite year, Road Wild 1997. We've had such a fun time talking about the great times of 1997. And uh, a couple of days from now, uh, Tony Schiavone and I are going to watch the WWF pay-per-view from that month, SummerSlam 97. But this one is, of course, the outdoor motorcycle rally in Sturgis, but with Hulk Hogan and Lex Luger on top for the world title, just five days after Lex Luger beat Hulk Hogan on Nitro in front of the biggest audience ever at the time to watch a match like that. The undercard has the Steiners and the Outsiders, the Giant and Randy Savage, Kurt Henning and Diamond Dallas Page, Ric Flair and Six, Alex Wright and Chris Jericho, Steve McMichael and Chris Benoit taking on Jeff Jarrett and Dean Malenko, Conan working with Rey Mysterio and Harlem Heat in there with Vicious and Delicious. What do you expect us to talk about next week here on Road Wild 1997? God only knows. Um, I'm sure we'll be listening to a lot of Dave Meltzer's opinion on the subject, so we could always look forward to that and my reactions as a result of it. Um, but that was a really unique event and and challenging in so many different ways. So um, I'll have to go back and watch it. Because while I remember being there, I don't remember the details of it. It all kind of falls into that big kaleidoscope, if you will, of, of things from my past as far as wrestling is concerned. So I'm going to go back and I'm going to watch it. And I'm sure you're going to analyze it from a very astute perspective. And we'll have a great conversation about it. You know, normally we don't do this on the show. We always do it sort of behind the scenes. But hypothetically... Could we get together towards the end of the week and do an Eric fires back part three? Cause I'm ready. Fuck brother. I am so ready. I am. I can't wait for the next one. Well, I've been thinking, I've been thinking about it a lot. I'm glad that you have, because I want to try even something else. We may even double down, but I've got a fun idea that I think is going to get everybody talking. And, uh, the more I think about it, the more I like it. Stay tuned. You'll get all of that stuff over at adfreeshows.com. And you would have gotten this show early and ad-free over at adfreeshows.com. You don't want to miss it. It's what all the cool kids are doing. I'm having way more fun at adfreeshows.com than I ever imagined. How about you, Eric? 
absolutely the same. I mean, I, I in fact, uh, th- this show obviously drops Monday morning at 6 a.m. On Wednesday, I'm going to be over at adfreeshows.com with a whole bunch of people on a Zoom conference call. A bunch of our, 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 I hate to call them subscribers because we don't have subscribers or we don't have members. We have relationships over at adfreeshows.com. We get to know you. We talk to you on the phone. We have Zoom calls with you. We get to know you and we get to know each other. But we're going to get together. Lauren Yaffe's going to host and we're going to rebook. Sturgis 1996. So I'm going to get on with all of our, our friends over at adfreeshows.com and I'm going to allow each one of them to pick a match that they want to rebook. And we're going to see if we can hypothetically rebook Sturgis 1996 in a way that will have reached even Dave Meltzer's approval. So we're going to get, we're going to give that a whack. So yeah, I have a blast doing it. Like I said, yesterday I spent a couple hours just calling people that had newly subscribed or upgraded their memberships. And honest to God, I had such a great conversation with almost everybody that I was disappointed when it was over. In fact, I left messages for some people that just weren't able to pick up the phone and promised them that I would call them back today. That's how much fun I had doing it. Go check it out. See what all the hype's about. It's adfreeshows.com and don't dare miss it. Later this week, Eric fires back part three and maybe a little fun surprise. All going to be at adfreeshows.com. But next week here on Westwood one, it's going to be Monday. And you know what that means? It's time for road wild 1997. He is at E Bischoff. I am at, Hey, Hey, it's Conrad. And if you've got a question for the show, ask it right now at 83 weeks on Twitter. And we'll see you next week. Same bat time, same bat channel. It's 83 weeks with Eric Bischoff. There's no better time to say I love you, and the most hated jeweler in America is at it again. You've heard us say I hate Stevensinger.com, and you've heard us rave about his famous roses, but Steven Singer has been selling diamonds and bridal jewelry for four decades. Whether you have someone or something to celebrate, Steven is there for you. Ready to take the next step? Steven has a Ready for Love engagement ring collection that is no hassle, no risk, expertly picked engagement rings that are ready to go. Don't worry, Steven won't let you mess this up. He's been selling online for more than two decades, but recently he's kicked up everything a notch to better serve his friends and guests online. He has real expert jewelers on call to help you find the perfect ring or gift through new virtual video appointments, calls, texts, chats, or emails, all with extended hours. On top of that, he offers the best guarantee in the business with a full 100-day, 100% money-back guarantee and free shipping. Interest-free financing is available online too, and that's just the beginning. Gifts that say I love you every single day, backed with decades of experience in the comfort of your own home, it's easy. Just go to IHateStevenSinger.com. Fast, free, and safe shipping. Steven Singer Jewelers. That's IHateStevenSinger.com. Hey, Keith. Um, I wanted to have a quick talk with you about your experience with Save With Conrad. Is it okay if I record it for the podcast? Yeah, that's fine. Awesome. Awesome. I've been telling you for a long time that SaveWithConrad.com can save you money, but don't take my word for it. First off, what made you come to Save With Conrad? I was to the point where I had two mortgages, and I was like, man, I, I, I really don't like having to write two checks every single month, mm. so I was... I was really looking to consolidate and make it into one and then save some money on top of it so i pretty much maxed out a credit card and i was like well 
I'm not going to get anywhere only making basically minimal payments. So I was like, if I refinance, I'll be able to pay off that credit card. So that really was what motivated me to do it. How was it working with Jimmy and the team? He's awesome to deal with. I'd recommend him to anybody. Um, is there anything through this experience for you that we could possibly change to make it smoother? Really, I think um, you guys did a really good job. Um, I really don't have any complaints, honestly. How much money was Save with, Save with Conrad able to save you through this whole thing? I'd say around $20,000 when it comes down to it. Um, it could be more than that, but I'm just a rough estimate, probably about 20000 Now, if you could tell, it, tell our podcast anything to encourage them about Save with Conrad, what would you tell them? In Conrad we trust, man. <laughs> <laughs> That I love it. I love it. So what are you waiting for? Find out how much money you can save right now for free. You don't need perfect credit or money out of your pocket. Even credit scores in the 500s can be approved. And if we can't save you money, we won't waste your time. But because we're licensed in more than 40 states, we can help more families than ever before. Find out how much money you can save right now for free at SaveWithConrad.com. Oh, and did I mention you could skip your next two house payments? Hurry to SaveWithConrad.com. NMLS number 65084, Equal Housing Lenders. Woo! Get your 83-weeks gear at EricBischoff.com. And check out BoxOfGimmicks.com, the official 83-week store with new items added weekly. John brings his skewed sense of humor. Jeff brings tips to cut strokes off your next round. Together, it's those weekend golf guys. They'll pay a lot of money to PXG and Titleist and Callaway and on and on and on, right? Yeah, how many yards do you think you're going to pick up with that extra driver? I think I can get an extra 5 to 10. What if I give you 15 to 20? <laughs> you pay me more. Jeff Smith right? teaches on the sliding scale. <laughs> those weekend golf guys, the podcast, part of the Believe Network. Just search B-L-E-A-V on YouTube or wherever you listen.